Marty J. Thank you. And in closing, I would like to thank that. A nickel, did you hear that? Cheap. Well, uh, you certainly look clean enough and nice enough and, you know, do you remember what you thought the room of drunks was going to look like when you got here? <laughs> it was like this. I mean, you're all sitting up. <laughs> I have had the privilege of uh, talking in Europe, of practically uh, visiting every state in the United States, all the provinces in Canada, never once ever as a conference started with the chairman saying, holy shit. <laughs> and two newcomers said, oh, I knew it was going to be religious. I knew it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> My name is Marty Jeffrey. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm so pleased to be here, and so uh, welcome. I've been made welcome here. Uh, I have been insulted almost from the time I hit the ground. It's just like home. Uh, I mean, I got in the car and Joanne said, you're uglier close up than you are up in the podium. She's been a gracious hostess. I mean, they s slowed the car down to 30 and rolled me out of it, so it was like getting home after a drunk, you know. It's, it's been a lot of fun ever since. I heard Tom this afternoon. It was a wonderful talk he gave, Tom. I don't know what, you know, he was getting people to raise their hands, kind of a group participation thing. Of course, nobody would. We're alcoholics. We don't participate in anything, you know. And it was just a classic talk on what alcoholism isn't. And uh, if you didn't uh, hear it, get the tape. He says he only sold one other tape. I, he needs the sales. We get, I'm, uh, I, I hope, going to talk about my story tonight. <laughs> You're the first people that sit still long enough to hear it, so I'm going to tell it. <laughs> you know, I have on many, many occasions after I have finished talking been approached by someone who said, don't you know that this is a life and death program? I tell them, yeah, I do. My brother-in-law, three years ago, threw a rope over a balcony and hung himself publicly. Yes, I understand. I have sponsored people that have drowned in their own vomit. I know it's a life and death program, but a big part of my recovery is laughter. And I checked it out in the book. It's right here. It says, <laughs> it says there is, there is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seeming worldliness and money, but just underneath there's a deadly earnestness. <laughs> no mean word? Faith for us has to work 24 hours a day or else we'll perish. So forgive me if um, you know if we have some fun tonight. All right? It's part of my recovery. Thank you. And um, I find laughter healing. I just do. I just sometimes I get in these rooms and I just marvel at the way that I can listen to a speaker and think, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't like you. I wish God would strike you drunk. <laughs> and I walk out feeling better. I don't know why that is, but I think it has something to do with this, this idea of us being colossal human failures brought together in this, this alchemy, this Alcoholics Anonymous, this miracle, this thing that says that every day is a brand new day. Screw it up any way you like. You've made it this far. 
start your day at two or four or eight. Can everybody hear me, by the way? Can you hear at the back? Should have got here earlier, shouldn't you? Great. Anyway. <laughs> you see, that's what the Friday night speaker is. It's to test the sound system. Tom did a beautiful job this afternoon of describing an alcoholic. The two things I know about my alcoholism are, A, if you'd have got me out of the gutter and lifted my head out of my own barf and asked me to sing the song that was utmost in my mind, it would have been, I did it my way, you know? <laughs> it's the page 62, self-centeredness is the root of our problem. And I also know that alcoholism comes in people, it doesn't come in bottles. And so those are the things I'm going to talk tonight about. I'm not going to talk about my, my drinking. There are people in this room that literally have spilt more than I drank. You know, very, very sloppy drinkers. <laughs> and I mean, I was, I was a teenage alcoholic. Uh, I, I was in a hot bathroom at the age of 11 with uh, a head full of Loganberry wine. That's an amazing, that, that's about any other compound on earth buffaloed. I mean, it goes down dark purple and comes up kind of a foamy pink. <laughs> but when you wet yourself, it's clear. That's what I like best. And I had my first spiritual experience with Loganberry wine at the age of 11. And I got on my bicycle and I had my first traffic accident. I rode into the back of a truck. I skinned my knees, I went home, I vomited on my brother, I got beat up, I got thrown in the bathtub, my mother insulted me, my sister walked in and saw me naked, it was humiliating. I got to school the next day and said, yes, I loved it. <laughs> That's how you know when you're alcoholic. <laughs> Anybody else should have quit said, screw that, I hated it. I said, yes, I feel like I belong. <laughs> How do you spell relief? <laughs> L-O-G-B-E-R-Y, Loganberry. Nice. I mean, at 11 years old, I was mad as hell. I do already, I was screwed. Everybody seemed to understand where they fit. I didn't understand what fitting even meant. Love, to me, was a connection you made when you wanted to get something on somebody. I mean, I remember all these thoughts. I thought about doing myself in at age 11. I was just as chronically alcoholic as hell. Because this thing progresses whether you drink or you don't drink. And it's like diabetes, you can get it at any stage. So if you're in the room tonight as a, well, like one guy described, at a zoo trying to find animals you cannot identify with. <laughs> you will find enough differences to get out of here tonight and walk away and drink some more, perhaps. I mean, I used to be uh, real jealous of the guys that hung out there for 40 years. I used to think, why couldn't, why did I have to get so bad so fast? I mean, they've been out there suffering for years and years. I want that. <laughs> I was 22 years old when I got kidnapped into Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> no. <laughs> I went to this meeting and there was these old people, some of them 40, with big stomachs that they called serenity pouches. <laughs> and they were talking about going up and down some stairs. I had 12 stairs. And one guy was stuck on the fifth stair. And another guy yelled, you don't do that fifth stair, you're going to get drunk. 
I said, where the hell is it? Let's get to the fifth stair. Yeah, you know. I didn't run in here and say, oh, I feel so bad. I mean, I was just a suicidal, very sorry 22-year-old. Didn't have any idea what was wrong with me. And I mean, I didn't even phone Alcoholics Anonymous. I had gone out and gotten drunk. This may surprise some of you. <laughs> Incidentally, if there are any visitors, friends of Alcoholics Anonymous in the room tonight, and this doesn't make any sense, that's okay. <laughs> that's really okay. Because <laughs> if it does make sense, there's a meeting list outside. You know what I mean? I had done the Alcoholic National Anthem, you know, dear God, get me out of this, and I will never drink again. I had been in a pub in Canada where I was born, way before I should have been born, incidentally. Anyway, there was a wrestler in there by the name of Sweet Daddy Seeky, and he mentioned something about wrestling, and I told him wrestling was, it was nonsense. It was just acrobatics. He said, really? I said, I could beat you up. He said, really? And then he talked about inserting my arms into orifices in my body that this couldn't even go into. And then it got dark. I don't know if you had this problem when you drank, but it always got dark. It wasn't that I didn't know where I was, it was that I didn't know where I was. And it was that one of those things. And the next scene, I'm laying on the sidewalk up in front of this pub, and there's a guy sitting on my chest. And he said, if you go back in there, he's going to kill you. I said, he's fat. Anyway, I hate him. I'm leaving. I got in my car. It's dark. Now I'm in an accident. I'm mad. My brand new, redone, mint 1959 T-Bird all smashed up. I get out of the car. I'm going to just rip this guy's face off. I can't. The car's empty. It's parked. I hit it. <laughs> I hate that. I hate those kind of things. <clears throat> Nobody saw, so I drove away. Now it's dark. Now I'm at the A&W. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. <laughs> Can't get you for a pair if you're a passenger, right? I'm wearing a mama burger. And I remember, <gasps> staff party tonight. They won't have a party if I don't go to the party. <laughs> Did you have that at the end of your drinking where people are talking to you and you're hearing one thing and they're actually saying something else like, Marty, we're having a party tonight, we'd like you to drop off. And I hear them say, you don't come to that party tonight, Marty. <laughs> Ain't gonna be a party. Now, you might not have any money and you certainly won't have any liquor to bring, but you can drink ours. And then, we'd like you to smash all the furniture. <laughs> you can just drop by. It would be a great party if you drop by. Well, that's what I thought I heard them say. And I went to their little staff party and there was the president of the company. And I thought, I got food all over me. He would look funny with food all over him. And I hit him right square in the face with a pizza. At this point, a man walked up to me by the name of Bill Story, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I would like to buy you a drink. I said, why? He said, because you're such an asshole. And I don't have to be like that anymore, and I feel like I owe it. I took his drink, because <laughs> you know what? I agreed with him. I agreed. It was said unanimous. Now it's dark. Now I'm in front of the apartment with a girl, and it's not my wife. Now it's dark. Now I am with my wife, and I'm in big trouble. The phone's ringing. It's a friend. He says, you are in a lot of trouble. I couldn't really remember what happened in the 
the dark areas, but I knew it was bad because he you know, wanted to have a conference and it's like nine o'clock in the morning and he tells me all these things I've done and the trouble that I've been. It was a mess. And that's where we joined me on, on my knees in the radio station I worked at, in the urinal, beside my buddy Jim. And I'm saying, oh, hi, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you got a cert, right? Anyway, uh, Jim, uh, Jim, he could not, I wanted to quit. He didn't understand why when we're having the big time we're having, I would want to quit drinking. And I told him, because I'm in all of this, I mean, it was my job today, Jim. Like, I mean, it's just every time we drink now, we seem to get in trouble. And he said, ah, it'll straighten out. It always straightens out. You overreact. Well, it did straighten out. You know how that goes? Five o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, I'm out of trouble. And I'm trying to remember, when I was praying to God this morning, asking him to get me out of this, did I say, I will never drink again? Or did I say, I will never drink again to excess? I would never say I would never drink again. So it must have been never drink again to excess. And besides, what a day I have had. Really, when you think about it, I've been in trouble, I'm unhappy, I'm going to go and have one beer, ease off a little bit. You see, I didn't know about the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know that it describes in there on the 21st page what a real alcoholic is. A person might start off as a moderate drinker, but could become a continuous hard drinker. But what differentiated me, made me alcoholic if you want, is, is that once I start to drink, I cannot control the amount I drink. It's just that simple. There are only two questions in alcohol. You don't need 20 questions. Two. When you start to drink, can you control how much you drink every time? Two. If you try to stop, can you stop and stay stopped? Those are the only two things you need to know. If you can't do those things, welcome. Get a cup of coffee and keep coming back. I go over to the bar. A bus goes by me. On the side of this bus, there's a kid in bed with a baseball mitt and his little hat. And the bus sign says, a few drinks after work with the boys, what does it cost? I thought to myself, I can't imagine how awful a person would have to be to leave a little guy to miss his baseball game to drink. I'm going to drink. I've got a kid at home. This is called denial. Couldn't identify with the billboard. It was many years before I ever really grieved that billboard. I go to the bar, I have a couple of drinks. I'm sitting with Jim. Jim suddenly looks very surprised. I said, what happened? He said, you just slapped me. <laughs> I hate when that happens. I hate when you slap somebody and you don't know you slapped them. <sighs> and the night got just crazy. It was just like, I, if you're an alcoholic, like I'm an alcoholic, the more I drink, the thirstier I get. It's incredible. I could be barfing my guts out and thinking, if I could get a drink, I know I'd feel better. <laughs> You know, now it's four o'clock in the morning. Somehow I've got this wife of mine in tow and this kid. And we're being thrown out of an apartment block by a very obnoxious person. We get into the smashed up T-bird. We hit the bridge on the way home. I'm condensing this because it it's just sad. I come sober. Just now I am completely sober and I remember a thought going through my mind now. You might say your sobriety didn't start with a prayer. I don't know. Mind it. I guarantee this. Swear to God. I said the real, honest-to-God prayer that an alcoholic says when enough's enough. I said, I am going to die, aren't I? And I, meant it. I knew it. I knew that I was going to go, like Bill said, on with that legion of thoughts into infinity, marching to... I mean, I, all of those pictures went through my mind. Most of all, a picture of myself 
when I was 16 years old sitting with a guy named Clint and him pulling a revolver out drunk and saying I bought this to kill myself and putting it to his head. I said, don't put it in your head, put it in your mouth because you'll make a mess if you put it in. Boom! He blows his head off. <coughs> you know, when you're an alcoholic like I'm an alcoholic, you start out and you've got a bunch of free tickets. You know, you just ha ha ha, you roll the car. Ha ha ha, you break into a bank. This, that, fun, fun, fun. And then the reality starts. To, it starts like, like the book says, like the rapturous creditor. It starts to pull things in. And those things were happening to me. Death, the madness and the blackness, and the fear were on me all the time. And all I could think about, the thought that every suicidal person has is that it would be better for everyone if I was just dead. And I drank to die. And it, it might have appeared to those around me that I was drinking for fun, because I used to try and laugh and I used to try to do great things. It wasn't fun. It was monotonous and it was lonely and it was full of fear and madness and anger. You know, I was out running in Rochester today, and I saw myself coming down the street. It was this guy who's nobody near him. He said, I'll tell you another thing. You son of a bitch. And he's all alone. <laughs> That's me. Except I got a way to get rid of the resentment. When I was drinking, I didn't. I had those conversations. Three and four way conversations. And I had this moment of clarity that they talk about in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was alert, and I was awake. And then it was morning, and the phone was ringing, and it was my sister. My nosy sister. She asked one of those questions. You wonder how they think them up, don't you? Right? How are you? I said, I'm so sick I could die, Lori. I don't know what's wrong with me. She says, out of clear blue, do you think you might have a drinking problem? <laughs> no, I don't have a drinking problem. Drinking is about the only thing I do real well. <laughs> I have a problem because I have you, and I have that bitch that I married, and I have that radio station, and I have problems. She said, if I called alcohol, now somebody had been to her, because she would normally fought with me. She said, if I called Alcoholics Anonymous, would you talk to them? I thought, great. Now I've got to help Alcoholics Anonymous. I haven't got enough problems. <laughs> now, you've got to understand that God has a sense of humor. Right? I mean, why else in formulating Alcoholics Anonymous, if you think about this, like the encyclopedia would say that a medical authority joined together with a financial expert to formulate a treatises for the alcoholism outbreak, pandemic outbreak, that crossed America. What really happened is that a doctor, a proctologist, <laughs> met with a bankrupt idealist, lawyer, flunky. A proctologist is a guy that works with broken rear ends, by the way. Okay, you're starting to get the picture here? I mean, it's still going on like that. We work with broken rear ends and bankrupt idealists. God has got the most tremendous sense of humor because I had married a Norwegian woman and I hated her. I hated her with a... Actually, I hated Norwegians. Because her father, when I used to bring her home, he used to say, flirt again the bird of hate of her. I always wonder how they do that in signing. The flirt Anyway, 
me. I have got... So, anyway. I don't blame him today for hating me because I wouldn't want somebody like me going out with my daughter either, but I didn't understand that. You know, to me, he was just Norwegian obnoxious. They eat fish. Called Ludafisk. Have you ever seen this stuff? It's cured in lye. It's gross. And they used to force feed this to me at Christmas. I think the biggest freedom I had in Alcoholics Anonymous my first six months of sobriety was telling her I wasn't eating the Ludafisk. That's the truth. I don't have to eat it anymore. I don't drink. <laughs> God select out of the million people in Alcoholics Anonymous to carry the message to me, a Norwegian <laughs> with a brush cut, and he's an amateur comedian. I'm sick as hell, and he says, I understand. You even drink when you're not thirsty. <laughs> really funny, Dwayne. <laughs> and then he took me to this meeting, and, and I mean, here's these fat guys and the stairs and the coffee. They're drinking coffee like any minute someone's going to rush in and say, where was the coffee patrol? You put that goddamn coffee away now. And uh, it's just <laughs> the most disjointed conversation you ever heard. None of them were on the same subject. They're all talking at the same time and going, uh-huh, mm-hmm, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. As soon as the other one stops, the other one starts. Right? That's the picture. At the end of it, the, the head guy gets up and says, if you want what we have. And uh, I thought, right. Let me see now. Yeah. Oh, the choices. Yeah, let me see. There was, uh, there was death. Yeah. Insanity and going to meetings. I'll take death. Give me death. No, I never want to be like you. Ever. I don't want to be fat and bald and old. I don't want to have to come to these meetings and listen to other people tell what it was like, what happened, and what it was like, and what happened. Hated it. Got out in the car. Dwayne says, how'd you like the meeting? I said, I loved it. <laughs> Good meeting. Almost makes me wish I was alcoholic. Really does. You know, you guys have really got something there. He took me home. I couldn't believe it. At 8 o'clock, he comes back and picks me up for another meeting. Very strange, because I kind of thought I'd blown them away. We go to the meeting, a bunch of these fat guys from the first meeting, and a couple of girls. Hookers, I figured. Right? Well, think about it. Alcoholics, right? Must be hookers. And they said, you can ask anything you want. So I put up my hand. I said, are you guys hookers? <laughs> they said, no, we're not hookers. No. But occasionally, we pick up an anemic little puke like you in a beer party around midnight, you know? And if he was good, he got lucky. And if not, I never knew. I never, you know, guys always talk about getting the ugly girl on. They wait for us. They do the picking, you idiots. It's been going on since the beginning of time. Big shock to my ego. Anyway, we got out of the meeting. I explained to Dwayne that that was probably even a better meeting than the first meeting. <laughs> Loved it. But don't want to go there anymore. Not alcoholic. Take me home. The next night, he's there to pick me up for another meeting. I said, I don't want to go. He said, I don't care. <laughs> I said, I have rights. He said, you don't. I said, I don't. Listen, I am not alcoholic. He said, you are so sick. 
You couldn't even choose whether or not you're alcoholic. Get in the car. Now, he's six foot five. He's 240 pounds. He says, would you like a drink? I said, yes. He said, good. We'll get you a beer. And then you're going to beat the snot out of you because we don't want you hurt by strangers. Get in the car. Get in the car. <laughs> My wife's in the background going, get it to him. Get it to him. Sure. No. He says, we got a 90-day deal, and here's how it goes. You don't drink for 90 days, you come to these meetings, and then if you don't like it, we will give you all your misery back, and you can go die someplace else. I thought, okay. You fat Norwegian jerk! I can do that, but I'm going to make your life miserable. And I did. And he brought in recruits. This guy tired me out. They'd hand me off from one to the other. Fresh, new, obnoxious people. People I'd never seen before started coming into my life. One of them said, you're having trouble getting a God, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, from now on, I'm God. I'll make your decision. He said, you will turn your life and your will over the power of Stan. Do you understand? 90 days of listening to this. 90 days of, of the same story. Because when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I couldn't hear. It wasn't that I didn't want to hear. I couldn't hear. You can't listen and be so scared you want to scream every minute at the same time. You can't do it. I was full of fear. I wanted them to shut up long enough for me to scream, somebody help me, but I didn't know how. And they said, you know, you come back to enough meetings and eventually your mind will follow. And I owned the cheap sayings. <laughs> And they said, this is a fellowship, and we have no dues or fees. And then they pass a hat. What's the hat? And then they had committees that as soon as you know what you were doing, they'd kick your ass off of them. It didn't, none of it made any sense. Well, my sponsor, when he was a pigeon, and they call them pigeons, you know, because when you're a pigeon, you squawk, and like that, when you're flying high and feeling good, you crap with your sponsor. That's why I call them pigeons. When he was... He was in his beat. They had a collection for New York, and, uh, and he went to put money in it, and they said, have you done your step five? And he said, no, I haven't. And they said, well, then you can't put money in We don't accept outside contributions. This didn't make any sense to me. I'm 90 days old. I have no change in attitude, none. I'm thinking to myself, tonight's the night. Dwayne's invited me to gratitude day, and I got lots of it. As soon as this meeting finishes, I'm gonna get absolutely juiced. <laughs> flatten the tires in his car. I was just thinking of all the stuff I was going to do to this guy. It was going to be just... <laughs> there was a speaker there. Some of you may remember Wesley Parrish. Just absolutely beautiful. I loved him. He was short, fat, and rich. That's what I really liked. He finished his talk. A bunch of people came up to thank him. He walked right off the stage, right up to me. And he said, what is bugging your butt, boy? I said, you are. He said, get out in the parking lot. I thought, oh, God, now Dwayne sick him on me, too.
you come to understand that the biggest secret you have is the largest generality in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> that thing you're afraid to tell everybody, we've done it. It's incredible. Like a guy said one night, if you came to a meeting and admitted that you made love to a zebra, somebody would say, well, at least one of you had was female. <laughs> you're not, you, you think you're packing something different? Forget it. Hey, hey, priests, go to sleep when we're doing our stuff. <laughs> you know, you wait. <laughs> I go out in the parking lot with Wesley, and he starts telling me some of my secrets. I'm like, Norwegians. They can't even shut up. Dwayne told them everything. And then he started telling some secrets that Dwayne didn't know. And I thought, her. He's been to her. Because these were her and I secrets. And then, this little man from Florida headed into a bunch of secrets that nobody knows. And I had a profound spiritual experience. <laughs> Alcoholics make noises when they have these. They go, huh? <laughs> what? It was like, who is this guy? And he said something to me. I want to share with you tonight. And I hope you can take it out of here. He said, have you known all of your life that you had something to do and you've never known what it was? I mean, like you always knew you were okay inside. You always had this kind of feeling that, that there was something you needed to do but you never put your name to it. You could never come to it. I said, yeah, I've always had that. He said, that is what it is. Like we are spiritual seekers. We've got this thing we've got to do and we can't get from here to there. We're so frustrated. We drink. We seek and we seek and we seek and we ask and we can't find. And the more we become convinced that we will never, ever find, the more alcoholic we become. My thought is this. Alcoholism is nothing to do with losing your house, your family, your car, your job, your self-respect. Those things will happen if you stay alcoholic long enough. But what makes me alcoholic as hell is, is that I lost hope. Completely, totally lost hope. It was like everything became the same. It was like, don't talk to me, don't try to help me, don't kill me, do kill me, I don't care. It was hopeless. And there stood this little man, and he said this to me, and I had, for the first time in these 90 days, hope. And I just hung on to it. And I left that meeting, and I said to this hostage, which some called a wife, you never guess what happened to me tonight. I, I'm going to stay sober some more. She didn't know, once AA got you, you could ever drink again. She kind of looked at me strange. She thought, once they got you, you're screwed. They'll beat you up if you drink. So, she didn't. I went from a drunk to a monk. <laughs> I got so spiritually minded, I was absolutely ineffective. I mean, I just got so God conscious, you know. And uh, I would say, you tired me out. I'd go to the meetings and you guys would swear and I'd pray for you. Oh, just pray and pray. So some son of a gun be mowing his lawn Sunday morning. I had to pray for him and I was just forgiving people. I forgave her for the way she treated me. <laughs> All the dumb stuff she was doing with the kid, and then I had to forgive them. The Norwegians in general was a biggie, but I did it. I forgave the whole, screw it, the whole country. You're all forgiven, you know. I quit going to AA because it just was too tiring. And in church, sizing up the females in the choir most of the time, being spiritual. I don't know if you've got one of these guys in your group. They're dangerous for them. Dwayne used to phone me, this big Norwegian, and he'd say, how are you doing? I'd say, good, and I was just going to lay some spiritual altitude on him, and then he'd tell me a dirty joke. I'd forgive him, you know. And then when I'd go to go to my spiritual altitude stuff, he'd hang up. 
Anyway, one night he phones, he says, would you like to hear a really spiritual tape? I'm like, I think I found it, Marty. I thought, I'm going to get to save my sponsor. This is great. Help me go in the car. He puts this tape in. It's a comedian by the name of Nestor Pister. Okay? Nestor's not really high on spiritual things. <laughs> so I pulled the tape out. I broke it. I didn't mean to break it, but I broke the tape. Now, I've never seen Dwayne angry before. But suffice to say that this very large vein in the middle of his head was going from one roll right over. I've never seen anything like it. It was like... And he just slammed that car into a curb and he said, Listen, you, Mr. Spiritual. He said, I got more spirituality in my ass than you got in your whole body. <laughs> this guy's getting tough to forgive, you know. <laughs> so I, I said, how would you know that? He said, I'll tell you how I know that. Because he said, God is a God of serenity and peace and joy and love and forgiveness. And you have none of those things. Nothing do you possess except that you want everybody to believe your way. He said, you know what? You've finally done it. I don't want anything more to do with you. Get out of the car. Go die someplace else. I have had enough. I mean, I got kicked out of alcoholics, no? I just knew he was going to write New York and have my name taken right out of the records, you know? At the same time, I'm in the church the next day, and the minister comes up to me, and he says, when you're in church, and I'm at the front, and, and I'm preaching, who's the audience? And I said, the people. He said, no, not the people. God is the audience, Marty. That's what we're doing there. I'm talking to you about his love. You're recognizing that we're celebrating his love. And all of that is like an aroma to him. It's like we're worshiping God together. And I got oh, one of those, uh-oh. And I thought, I've got to go back to AA. Now, I want you to understand that I know that there's lots of people in this room that go to church, and I think church is fine. As long as you're not a phony poop like I was. It was me that was wrong, not the church. My attitude stunk. I didn't want to be with God. I wanted to be God's right-hand messenger. I mean, the same guy that phoned Dwayne in about my fourth week of sobriety and said, Dwayne, I can't do step three. If I make a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of God, he'll send me to Africa to be a missionary. And he said, what would they do with an idiot like you in Africa? God would never do that to those people. I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked into that Sunday morning meeting, and one of the old timers said, Hallelujah, the Lord is back among us. <laughs> and I heard another one say, There but for the grace of God goes God. <laughs> and I thought, Oh, God, I'm home. Oh, thank you. Stan got me out in the car. He said, Marty, Marty, Marty. It isn't that what you did was wrong. It's just that there were these seekers, and you just it wasn't good enough for you to get God in the normal manner of having a spiritual awakening. You wanted it all at once, you know? You know? That's true. I mean, I just pushed my way into the throne room and said, here I am, use me. And God said, oh, you. He probably said, oh, they. Well, it depends on whether or not you adhere to the Jewish thing, eh? Anyway. I get back in the alcohol and I start to do the steps. My life is unmanageable. I'm doing everything I don't want to do. I'm doing nothing I do want to do. That's unmanageability. And I'm powerless, because when I drank, I couldn't stop drinking, so I'm powerless. That was easy. I am coming to believe that there's a power because Stan and Dwayne. I believed in them. And they're returning me to sanity, because sanity is not doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. 
They would say, you do this and you do this and this will happen. And that, my friend, is how I developed faith. I used to sit around in front of that Bible when I was a beat of the priest. I used to sit around and I'd say, God, give me faith. Give me faith, Lord. Give me faith. And God would say, Marty, give me a break. Like, do something, you little turd. Do it. Do it and you will get a result. And once you've got a result, then you will come to believe. See, it's like sitting in a chair. I mean, for years and years, I've tossed myself into chairs. I had to develop a faith in chairs before I knew for sure they'd hold me up. That's how this thing works. This is an action program. And so I made a decision to toss myself into Alcoholics Anonymous to do the things that they said I should do. And that's as far as I got, and I sat waiting for my spiritual gift. Yeah. Doesn't happen in step three. Book says it starts in step five. For people like me that I'm starting to have a spiritual experience. Maybe you got knocked off a jackass in the desert. I didn't. Didn't happen for me like that. See, at the end of step three, when I made a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of God, I had done nothing more than reported for duty. And I mean, I just worked with a lot of drunks. I just walked with the drunks and I talked with the drunks and I went to convention after convention and I stayed sober. And by the time I was six years sober, I had the big secret. AA doesn't work. Right? Stuck on the wall, saying, oh, hi, a And those newcomers with all that hair. I hated them. And I hated worse the fact that the old timers liked the newcomers. I was a middle member stuck with the secret. Will they find out AA doesn't work? You see, AA doesn't work. Not if you're trying to take it in by osmosis. This is an action program. I'm sitting at a meeting one night in Winnipeg, Canada, and there's a guy by the name of Tony I speaking. He gives a wonderful talk. I'm thinking to myself, who set these tables? They're all wrong. And look at these people. These are all awful looking people. They look like they escaped from Kmart. What the hell am I doing in this place? I hate this place. I hate that speaker. I hate everything. He finishes talking. Everybody stands up. I stand up. Oh, God, thank God it's over. All of a sudden, it was like an LSD experience, you know? Some of you dudes from the 60s, do you remember that stuff? Everything going on. Hey, 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 hey. I hated that. <laughs> That's why I think drug addicts have a big title at AA is because my fear was going out of the world. I wanted to be in the center of everything. I mean, I could be in my room alone, drunk, running General Motors. You put me on them drugs and I feel like I'm out of control. I hated it. My fear was coming out. Their fear is going in. And it must be very confusing. I'm so grateful that any happened and that we're able to support that program and, and love through that program. A lot of different fears. This thing is like uh, somebody put acid in my coffee. So I run across the street to where my family was in a hotel. My wife's in bed. I swam the door and I must have looked like hell. She says, what's wrong? And I shared with her. I said, shut up. That's how I always share it with her. It takes years to learn how to take AA home. Years. I used to close that door and it was different in there. You know, the guys, hey guys, great meeting, love God, and walking and going, sad. I did a very loving thing for her, I left her. Anyway, I go in the bathroom, I get on my knees and I just started to pray and I opened the big book. 
And there it was on page 85, just out of clear, I don't know why I went there, but it said that my sobriety was a contingent deal. That it was contingent on maintenance of my spiritual condition. It was like the letters stood right out of that book. And as soon as I read that, I went quiet, just totally quiet. And I went to bed and I slept. I used to say, the teacher will appear. See? And I was ready. I was open like a flower. And God sent into my life some people to teach me not the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I almost died trying to live on just fellowship. See? They brought me the book, the steps, the program, Alcoholics Anonymous. And they gave me understanding as to why the program works the way the program works. See, the fellowship says many, many things. Um, it will tell you things like, you know, if you just take tomatoes and vinegar, you'll never have to drink again. I mean, I heard that at a meeting. I had a guy when I had a meeting describing that he could get his capillaries readjusted. The fellowship is opinions and observations and things we've heard other people say, and the love and the, it, absolutely necessary. But the program is the program, and it works every time you work it. So I did this step four. I made a list, and I found out, it says in there, you made a list of the people you resent, period. You don't analyze anything, you just make the list. And then I went back to the list and I analyzed it. And I did it like the book said. I had a spiritual experience. A change, a profound change in attitude. I found myself, for the first time in my life, able to enter a room and not feel like everybody was looking at me. You know, and it wasn't that I hadn't been told. Old Dwayne told me years ago, Marty, when you walk in a room, you will never believe how little everyone cares. <laughs> what a relief. What a relief to be able to go to a meeting and just share how I see it and know that I don't have to bring the tablets down from the bloody mountain. What a relief to know that everybody falls short of the glory of God, that we are all screwed up. What a relief. What a relief to be able to make mistakes. You know, Dwayne, one time when I was about 11 years sober, had me in a car and he said, talk to me about your step 10. I said, what do you mean, Dwayne? He said, how do you do inventory? I said, well, I go to bed. I think of everything I've done wrong. He said, I know it. Don't tell me anymore. You're sick, 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 sick. Under the word sick in the encyclopedia, they should have your picture. Sick, sick, sick. <laughs> he said, Marty, if you take something out of something, Anywhere on the planet, anywhere in the universe, if you make a hole, it will fill with something. You understand what I'm saying? I said, no. He said, look, if you went in the sand and you dug a hole, what would happen to it? I said, well, I don't know. I guess it would fill with air. He said, that's right. It will fill with something. And if you don't put something really solid in there, it will backfill with whatever came out of it. I said, uh-huh. Like, I'm going to sponsor this guy someday. He said, Marty, when you go to bed at night, he said, it is a fact-finding, fact-facing job. Why don't you ask God also to show you the things that you were successful at this day? And then why wouldn't you try and concentrate on the positive things that you did this day? And if you fill those empty, gaping holes that were full of your shortcomings with positive thoughts, they will become positive things in your life. And I put that into practice. That has been a salvation for me. Because I always lean to the negative. I, my daddy used to say, if you haven't got anything nice to say about somebody, Marty, let's hear it. <laughs> I suffer from a perception problem. Alcoholism is a perception problem. 
I have learned to say where there is this much shit, there is a pony. <laughs> Do you? Can anybody grasp what they went through in 1935 and 1939? Bill's not working, Lois is in the department store. I mean, he's telling people, say, when are you going to go back to work, you jerk? And day in, day out, the pressure. When the thing started to happen and groups were calling in from all over the world with these horrendous problems, do you think that they were happy they found an AA? They thought they'd organized platoons of lunatics all over the world. Look, it says that we will trudge the happy road of destiny. Let me just sum up by telling you about my spiritual experience because I cannot share with you anything more key to my recovery than this thing. You see, after I had this horrendous LSD experience in the speaker meeting and everything had come to pieces and I stood there one more time bare naked, no defense mechanisms, I knew for sure that the fellowship couldn't save me, I couldn't have Dwayne sobriety, I couldn't have Stan sobriety, I couldn't walk and talk like you anymore, I had to become me, whatever that was, I didn't know, but there I was. And I said, what is a spiritual experience? And I was in a meeting, a meeting I never went to because there is nothing but jerks at this meeting. And my sponsor said, why don't you go and give them one more, you know? They're reading out of the big book. I thought, what a novel idea. <laughs> and they read this little paragraph of, and come back with me. Bill's in bed. He has done all the steps. If you read Bill's story, they're all in there. Right? Evie's sitting on the edge of the bed. Bill had just finished doing his confession, his fifth step, if you want, with Evie. And then he drops it on. He says, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all of my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For, this is, this is incredible, I never saw this before, but it's here. If an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge on his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. Two things I needed to know there. One, spiritual is doing things for others. Work and self-sacrifice for others will give me a spiritual dimension, action. Two, it says, if I don't do that, I will not survive and certain trials and low spots ahead. Now, if you've got a sponsor that tells you, don't drink, go to meetings, read your book, everything will be wonderful, you can share with him the old Mexican, adios, Jack, because it ain't like that. We are on the planet Earth. It does not care how sensitive you are. There are people sent to go to you every day. They're called family. They're called friends. They're called workers. They are everywhere. They drive me nuts. And the only one I hate worse is when I'm alone with me. Certain trials and low spots. What do I do? I throw myself all the harder into working and self-sacrifice for others. Same thing with the sex problems. Do you think God hasn't got a sense of humor and yet the whole sex deal is on page 69? Like, grab a brain. It's, <laughs> right? Come on. It says, when we are tempted, we throw ourselves all the harder into working with, not on, with, working with others. Do you know why? It's because People like me have no self-worth. If I was to draw an alcoholic on a blackboard, it would have a hole in it this big. 
and that thing can never get filled. There aren't enough girls, there's not enough liquor, there's not enough cars. I have made more money than anybody I know. You can shove all that stuff because it doesn't fill the hole. I promise you that. But I'll tell you something that fills me up every time that happens. It's one of those stupid newcomers blubbering all over. You're so grateful, I'm so glad to see you. Feels good. Right? And they're going to drop it on you to the point where you can't stand their grief anymore. And you go, <laughs> I love that look on their face. Working and self-sacrifice for others. You want a spiritual experience? Throw yourself into it. Clean house. Come on the happy highway. It really works. It really works. And it'll work every time I work. It's like, it always reminds me of a story, you know, and I, I like to take credit for my recovery, but I tell you, it's all gone. And I'll close with this. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. It's about an AA speaker that's going to a conference to talk, and he's like 15 minutes late. And he's praying as he goes, as many of us do. And he's saying, look, God, I've got to have a parking spot. It's not a big request, and it's not for me. Really, they need to hear from me. Right? So if you would just provide this parking spot, just right in front of the church where I'm speaking, I won't ask for anything else. I mean, I've been doing my program. I've been working with others. I made coffee last week, for God's sakes. One lousy parking spot. That's all I'm asking. And as he drives up, a car pulls out. <laughs> he says, never mind, I got one. <laughs> I was laying by my swimming pool one day. I felt a shadow come across me. It was my nine-year-old son at that time. He's six foot one, like 170 pounds now. I call him Mr. Son. And he says to me, <clears throat> how much you got to drink to get into Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, why? And he said, because I want to get into AA, but I don't want to drink that much. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. You know, hey, this thing is in everything you are. This is a life. It will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Just whatever you do. Somebody said to me one time, it's old and it's tired, but it's true. They said, Marty, for people like you, when you are deep in your own thoughts, you are behind enemy lines. <laughs> Shut your mind up. Come on in here. Don't think. Don't drink. It really works. God bless you. And am I looking forward to this weekend? Hi, my name is Janet. I'm a colleague. Well, our topic today is strength and sponsorship. And uh, I don't know. I don't know about your area or any area I know about is my area, Niagara. And uh, nowadays it's very hard to get sponsors for young. I'm Gary, I'm a grateful alcoholic. And I'm uh, sober by the grace of God in the 12 steps of AA, and I'm really grateful to be here today. Um, and it's a real honor to be asked to. Uh, share at the uh, convention here locally. Um, I want to thank the convention committee for asking me. I'm really humbled and it's quite a privilege and um, I'm really nervous. My first sponsor told me uh, it's just God shaking the truth out of you. You don't have to shake this hard, okay? <laughs> You know, my, my sobriety dates July 9th, 1991, and, and when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, we used to have a lot of shakers, you know? And if you ever had to get to see that or experience that, you may get that visual today when I share. Uh, so, 
Um, look, honey, I got all the ribbon. <laughs> I feel like I won the cow milking contest at the Iowa State Fair. That just proves I've got the best udder in town. And uh, if your home group isn't the best home group in the world, don't change home groups. Just get more active and make it the best home group in the world. Um, as I said, my sobriety date is July 9th, 1991. I don't tell you that to impress you. It doesn't impress me. Um, after all, I drank for 25 years and I did a bunch of other party favors and uh, I'm only sober for 12. I have a lot more experience uh, drinking than I do staying sober. But I was taught that I need to share my sobriety date so that people know the program works. And that was important to me when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, to hear people announce their sobriety dates. Um, I was also taught not to announce a sobriety date I haven't earned. And I learned that the hard way. I, was at the, I got sober at the workshop on Central Avenue and I shared in the meeting that I was coming up on nine months Friday. And uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we have three forms of communication, you know, telephone, cell phone, and tel-AA. You know, that's the third greatest communication in the world. And uh, my sponsor got wind of that. He explained to me we don't take credit for things we haven't earned. And, uh, you know, I had a towering ego as it was. And, uh, you know, I need to remember that this is a day at a time program. It's not a month at a time. It's not a year at a time. And if I start counting the months and the years, I'll forget about the day at a time. And I won't be here. And I need to be here because AA saved my life. AA saved my life. Um, not only gave me sobriety, restored me to sanity, and has given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. Um, and it's hard for me to express the gratitude of what this program has done for me through 12 simple steps. Um, I was a broken person when I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had lost my dignity as a man. And on top of all the other things I had lost, I had lost my dignity as a man. And I have that back today. And, and that's one of the many, many blessings that I have been given as a member of this fellowship. And I will be forever grateful. Um, my dad was a hard drinker. Uh, my mom uh, had a Valium deficiency. Um, I got one brother, older brother. And um, you may have noticed I'm a little taller than everybody. And uh, I sort of grew up, uh, you know, in school, uh, being teased a lot by people in school because of my height. Actually, my kindergarten picture, I'm, I'm standing right next to the kindergarten teacher, and I'm as tall as a kindergarten teacher. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's unique. Um, so uh, I knew right away that, you know, I was different. I was taller than everybody. And... Um, at my house, um, the way I was brought up is uh, boys don't cry. Um, that's enough out of you, young man. And uh, if you want to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. And uh, I remembered learning how to stuff my feelings. I was about eight years old at the dentist. And uh, my dad took me and he looked over at me and he goes, you're not scared, are you? And I was terrified. I wasn't scared. I was terrified. But I knew that he didn't want to hear that. And I said, no, Dad, I'm not scared. And he goes, good. And that was important to me because I got the acceptance of my father. I told him exactly what he wanted to hear because I needed that acceptance from him. And, and that lesson, looking back, taught me 
to not share how I was feeling. And um, I did that all my life. I did that all my life. And, and I've done that at times in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, we're human. But uh, I've learned today that I can trust people in these rooms and I can allow myself the uh, humanity that we all possess, but I can share with another person. I think sometimes we get time in the program and uh, at times I've been, I've been less than honest with others because I don't want them to really know what's going on with me. You know, I, get, I start worrying about my AA image and uh, I, I have to watch myself and be on guard for that. Um, it's not important what people think, it's for me, it's more important that I be honest today. That's what's important today. Um, so, anyways, um, at 13 was my first time I drank, and I loved it. I love drinking. Oh boy, do I love drinking. I love alcohol. I like any flavor. It, it works for me. It just works. Everything, it's all good. It's all good. And, um, and I like to get, I like to get drunk. I want to be blasted. I want to get crushed. I want an out-of-body experience. I mean, when I drink, that's what's going to happen. And um, that's how I drink. That's how I, as a matter of fact, I don't understand why you would drink any other way. I get so frustrated when I'm with people that are, quote, social drinkers. You know, I, I'll be out with a client and, you know, the guy will order a drink and then they, they sip it. And, and they leave it, and they ignore it. They're not paying attention to their drinking. And um, it's frustrating for me, and I'm sitting there going, well, is there something wrong with it? Is it, he'll make you another, if it's not right, just ask him. And then they commit the, they commit the ultimate sin if you're a person like me. They let the ice melt in their drink, okay? That's my definition of fall abuse. Um, so, so at 13, I'm drinking, and um, at 16, I skipped my final year of high school and graduate. Uh, I went to night school at East High School to graduate and end up going to New York University. And at 20, I uh, graduate with honors, and at 21, I get my master's. And um, I got a degree, but I did not get an education because I, well, two, a couple things happened there. The first thing that happened was um, I thought my parents were the problem. If I just got away from my parents, that would solve the problem. And what we learned in AA is wherever you go, there you are. And there I was. You know, I took Gary with me to New York. And, uh, you know, I didn't even know I was that bad in, in college. I was sharing with my first sponsor. You know, I used to chase buses down Broadway when I drank. I would drink in my room and then I would take the elevator down and I would wait for the bus and I would just chase it for blocks and blocks to the point where the bus driver would wave. And when I came in AA, my sponsor says, you know, social drinkers don't chase buses. <laughs> and that was sort of a revelation, like, wow, that's pretty impressive. So anyways, I had all my degrees and I was ready to, you know, I was the top of the world. I was going to conquer Wall Street. And um, I got hired by a firm that had been in business for 125 years. And um, I remember at the end of the week, I was out with a couple friends at a bar, what a surprise. And uh, I was sharing with them how it was so unbelievable to me that these people were in business as long as they had been in business because they had absolutely no clue what they were doing. I mean, thank God I showed up because it was patently obvious they were about to go under. Um, what happened is I pointed that out to them, that they had significant internal problems, 
and uh, they pointed out to me the door and where I could uh, find it. And, uh, and, and then my pride got in the way. I could never tell any, I could never admit to you I got fired from a job. Never, ever. I would say I lost the job. It's like I showed up one day, they moved the whole operation. I don't know where they went. I lost it. They're gone. Who knows? So, um, and, and, and what happened was I kept losing jobs. I kept losing them. And so I came back to Rochester with my tail between my legs. And uh, I was living... Uh, the La Vida Loco. I was living on Smith Street in a furnished uh, studio apartment behind Nick Tahoe's, which one of my sponsees calls the Ghetto Fabulous. And um, I, uh, I was drinking a lot and I was struggling a lot. And uh, this is how bad I had become. I, you know, when you drink, you tend not to pay attention to all the other little things you need to do, like bathe or like clean your apartment. But every now and then, you know, even a blind squirrel gets a chestnut every now and then. And I, I would convince some woman that she might want to come over to my place. And uh, this girl was coming over and, you know, I knew enough that women tend to want to check out a guy's bathroom for some reason. That's important to them. And I had never once since I had lived there cleaned the bathtub. And, you know, I, we are a baffled lot. You know, I didn't know what to do. But all of a sudden, you know, that thought came to me and I ran to the hardware store and I got home with white spray enamel paint and I spray painted the bathtub. You, you laugh, but it worked. Um, so, uh, that's, that's a true story and uh, we can laugh about that today. Um, I, I decided to start my own business because I had a reputation because anytime I went for an interview, they would check your references and people said, you don't want that guy. So I, you know, I, there was no, nothing else for me to do. And through some uh, hard work and some real blessings and some uh, luck, um, I, I started a business that became wildly successful. And um, I made more money than I ever deserved. I was given more gifts and opportunities in my life. I, I, I mean, I, 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 was, I had everything you were supposed to have. Um, I had the big house in Pittsburgh. I had the cars. I had the country club membership. And I, I, I came from a poor family, so it was my idea that if I looked good on the outside, everything would be okay. I thought that everything was based on what car I drove, what house I had, how much was in the bank, what jewelry, whatever. And I didn't learn until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that happiness is an inside job and it's got to come from within. Um, those things are nice to have, but I spent my entire life uh, loving things that were things. You know, I didn't know how to love people. I just loved things and um, things can't love you back. And my priorities were messed up. And what AA has taught me is that, you know, I need to get spiritually fit. And um, because I have soul sickness and, and that's a blessing here because I chased it for a long time because I lived my entire life and my motto should have been, you know, there was never enough. There was a never, no matter what it was, there was never enough. If it was a car, I needed a bigger car, I needed a faster car. If it was a house, I needed a bigger house, I had to have more toys in it. Uh, the girlfriend, it, she, you know, she was wrong, it was blonde, I needed brunette, it didn't really matter. There was just never enough. And when it came to my drinking, there was never enough. You know, I drank like they were going to stop making this stuff at this point. Um, so I'm going to the bars and I'm drinking a lot. And, you know, we all have our bartenders, you know, our favorite bartenders, um, who I decided I really thought they were more like flight attendants for me because drinking became a form of time travel. 
Um, see, my drinking was I would drink and then I'd end up like two towns over, but I'm not really, I don't remember that transfer and I don't remember, I didn't remember how I got home, you know. A lot of times um, I'd get home, but in the morning the car wasn't there, you know. Now, in sobriety, I will admit to all of you, I have lost my car keys. You know, that's, it's happened, I lose my car keys. But losing two tons of steel is not an easy thing to misplace. It's a big object. And uh, that happened to me. So, um, and it proceeded to get worse. It proceeded to get worse. Um, I was drinking more, I was blacking out. One day I'm, I'm, I'm home, sheriffs come to the door. That's never a good thing in the morning. And, um, and the bad part is I have no idea because I don't remember the night before. And they say to me, Gary, there's been a lot of vandalism in the neighborhood. And uh, there was a bunch of lawn jobs and mailboxes taken out. And here's our card, and you call us if you see anything in the neighborhood. Now, I am hung over to beat the band. I'm thinking, okay, buddy, fine. Shut the door, and then once again, uh, the light bulb went off. And so I open, I go down to the garage, open the garage. There's one of my cars. I got bushes in the bumper. I got dirt. I mean, it looked like I was in a demolition derby with the car. And, um, and you know, it, and we can all laugh about it, but it's by, it's by God's grace I didn't kill somebody. It's by God's grace. I used to think I'm a better driver when I drink. I used to actually believe that. And when people talk about drinking and driving, when I came into AA, I thought they meant you go to a bar, you drink, and then you drive. I never left home without it. Why wouldn't you bring it with you into the car and drinking while you're driving? Why, what, it made no sense to me. You can do both. And that's what I did. I would drink and drive. That just worked for me. So things went on and it progressed. And, um, you know, I, I went through it all. I got the wife. And... Uh, I figured that was a solution to my, that'll calm me down because I knew things were careening out of control. And, but you know, you're not gonna go to church and, and find some teetotaling person to marry. You know, I'm gonna marry someone that drinks like, like I drank. If you didn't drink like me, I really didn't wanna be around you. And um, you know, we got married and she immediately was on me about my drinking. She became pregnant, you know? And I mean, I worked hard. I brought home a lot of money. I provided a good house and you know, she, she be sitting there at the dining room table, and she'd say, you know, that's your third beer. I go, listen, you know, why don't you just, you know, just don't worry what I'm doing and finish your breakfast. You know, it didn't matter, you know. You know. So, this is how it went. This is how it went for us. And um, what happened was, is that she became pregnant and she put herself on her own, without any encouragement by me, believe me, into an outpatient program and she stopped drinking. And that was the beginning again for me because I, I was living in, I wasn't about to stop drinking. And um, so I had to start sneaking my drinking and hiding my drinking. And um, I used to play this hit and run thing. I'd come home. I'd been drinking, she'd have the audacity to accuse me of drinking, and I'd how dare you, and I would just leave and go drink more. Um, and uh, that's just how it was. And my behavior, I started to treat her very badly, and, and I harmed her very badly. And we lost that baby, we had a stillborn in seven months, and um, that was the, uh, pretty much the end for us, because I just went right off deep end. And, and what do I do when I'm in pain? 
When I'm in a lot of pain, I want to medicate because that's what alcohol does for me. Alcohol allows me to uh, feel other than how I'm feeling. And I don't like to feel pain. I don't do well with sadness. I don't do well with hurt. I do well with medication. And I want to medicate it. I want to be numb. I don't want to feel anything. And um, for me, alcohol was liquid courage. Alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I can't tell you how many business situations involved alcohol, and it always made me feel okay. It made me feel not less than, because I'm the type of guy that if you treat me special, I feel average, and if you treat me average, I feel rejected. And alcohol changed all of that. I mean, I had a very strange phenomenon happen to me. I would go to a bar where I didn't know any, anybody, and I would feel very out of place. And after a couple hours, I would feel like I knew everybody all my life, and I'd fit right in. But then a curious thing happened. An hour later, I would be looking down on these people saying, my God, what am I doing drinking with these people? You know, they really have problems, you know, and I'd leave the bar. And that was a progressive thing for me. So anyways, my wife left, and uh, which my first sponsor told me good, she's a smart woman. and. Um, I ended up, a, a, it took me another three years before I found these rooms. And I didn't come in Alcoholics Anonymous because I wanted to. I ended up going on a one hour chase through two counties with the police at very high speeds. And the sad part of that was, is that um, I'm driving in neighborhoods where kids are playing. And I had become so cold hearted that I wasn't about to stop if there were kids on the street. There was no way. And that's the type of despicable, disgusting, human being I had become. And eventually that just ended up in Virgin. And I remember I was uh, down in the uh, bullpen downtown, which is the holding cell. And I had two felonies, three misdemeanors, and 19 traffic charges. And I said, my God, I've got to stop driving. And um, <laughs> because it, you know, it just never made sense that I had a, a drinking problem. I knew I had a driving problem. You know, prior to that, I had totaled two automobiles, total within a period of six months. And um, the insurance company wrote me a letter and said, we are canceling your insurance due to too many accidents. And that took me right off the hook. I said, that's the problem, I'm accident prone. You know, that's my problem, you know? And that's how always it was for me. And anyways, that, that is when, that was the day of my sobriety, it was July 9th, 1991. That's where I went to jail. I was in jail for six months. I detoxed in jail, I don't suggest it. I saw, snakes come, I saw snakes coming out of my arms and spiders crawling on my chest. I guess the best way I could describe it was a, a, a bad uh, acid trip, you know? And um, I ended up out in the Monroe County Jail and these guys came in from Alcoholics Anonymous. And we had one meeting a week and now there's nine pods where they can come in. And we had one meeting a week and they ended up coming into our pod. Ours wasn't an alcohol pod. They didn't have any um, treatment pods out there like we have now it picked up my pot. So that was my first God moment that I didn't realize was a God moment. And these guys showed up every week and I was convinced, what a bunch of losers. How lame is this? See, because when you're in jail, all you want to do is get out of jail. So the idea that people that are not in jail coming into the jail means they are absolutely, they have no life at all, okay? They may not be drinking, but I was having a lot more fun than they were, let me tell you. And, uh, you know, they showed up and they carried, and I, I was impressed. The same guy showed up every week. It just impressed me. And um, so when I got out after six months, I wasn't planning 
Um, well, I had my plan, um, but my higher power at the, at the time, Judge Bristol, had his plan. <laughs> and uh, I ended up in a men's shelter on Joseph Avenue. And um, I was there for nine months. And I was mandated to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I came in out of compliance. I didn't come in because I wanted to be here. And it was awful because I was going to these meetings every day to get this piece of paper signed, and it was awful, you know, um, because everything gets better when you're, when, when you're not drinking and not working the steps. Your resentments get better, you know, you become rageful. You know, the fear turns into terror. I wanted to kill everybody, you know. You were the problem. I was never suicidal. I was homicidal. If you'd all die, I'd be fine. And um, so... I'd go to the workshop and I'd sit, I got sober at the workshop on Central Avenue, I'm a workshop baby, and I'd sit in the last row and I would sit there and take everyone's inventory. And that's what I would do. I would just take your inventory and he's doing that and he's doing that and I know what he's doing, he's lying and, you know, and um, that's how it was for me. And I was suffering from untreated alcoholism and that's the worst thing if you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I wasn't drinking, so that's the only requirement for membership. Thank God that's the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. And um, because I, the way I treated my alcoholism was with alcohol. You know, that's how I treated it. And when you take the alcohol away, you have, there's a huge void. There's a vacuum that needs to be replaced with something. And um, I was working step none. And the benefit of step none is nothing. And that's the results I was getting. I was getting no results at all. And I was miserable. I was miserable. And um, so I broke down and got a sponsor. And they said, uh, you know, get someone who has what you want. Because I didn't know what a sponsor was. Well, there was a guy with a Lincoln Town car. And I needed that. And um, I knew if I got that, I'd get the girl. If I get the town car. Well, as I asked him to be my sponsor, and, he, and uh, he didn't offer to loan me his car, and I didn't know he had 25 years in the program, and he asked me to mop the floor after the meeting. And I was like, my God, he obviously doesn't know who he's dealing with. I'm new here, I don't mop floors, okay? Mopping is not my thing. And I tried to explain this to him, and he just said, mop the floor after the meeting. So I'd mop it with this huge resentment, you know, and um, eventually, you know, um, it got worse. It got worse. I started cleaning ashtrays. And, because uh, all of me, most of the meetings were smoking, and I'm the ashtray cleaner. Some guy has two cigarettes going at the same time in two different ashtrays. <laughs> so I point out to him during the meeting in a very nice way that I thought that was fairly disrespectful. I have to clean these. Well, he gave me this hand gesture back, so it only seemed to make sense to tackle him right out of his chair during the meeting. <laughs> well, guess what? My sponsor found out, and uh, <laughs> he started talking about these traditions. Now, my attitude towards the traditions was, why are we reading these? It's slowing up the meeting. You know, we can cut a lot of this reading stuff out here, all right? This tradition things, what up? This isn't working for me. And he explained about our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity in that we don't start fist fights in the middle of a meeting. That's not what we do. And uh, so he started talking to me more about the traditions. Anyways, I'm work I, I was on the first chapter for six months, and let me just say this because I hear all sorts of different things. 
My sponsor said, regular people I sponsor can get this down in a few weeks. He goes, but smart Alex like you, although that's not the word he used, um, it usually takes a long time. Because, see, I was convinced I wasn't an alcoholic. I did not have alcoholism, you know. I had a few setbacks. Um, you know, I'd lost the wife, I'd lost the business, I'd lost the home, lost my friends, family wasn't talking to me anymore. Just, these were some setbacks, you know, nothing, I'm living in a homeless shelter, but I'm getting $49 a month from the county, and you know, so there's something. And, um, and I was convinced I could fix this, and, um, until I got the ABCs of Alcoholics Anonymous that, you know, we, we were alcoholics and could not manage our own lives. Probably no human power could relieve our alcoholism and that God could and would if he were sought. I wasn't going anywhere. And I couldn't get the B and C of it because I suffer a disease of denial. My disease tells me you're not that bad. It's going to be different next time. And you learned your lesson. And that's what my disease was telling me on a daily basis. I'm just not that bad because I would, I would compare and I wouldn't try to relate. I'd come in here, I hear people that went to prison. Well, I haven't gone to prison. If I ever get that bad, I'll probably come in here and take it serious. And until I could get past the idea that no human power, I was powerless. Lack of power was my dilemma. I was absent power. I was without power. I needed to find some power and it couldn't be human power because that wasn't going to work and that I had to give that up. And see, my idea of powerlessness meant, the way I was brought up by my father, is that you're a coward and a weakling. You know, and that's not what it's about at all. It just comes, when it comes to alcohol, when I pick it up, I cannot predict with certainty what's going to happen. But the way I was living my life, I was suffering worse and worse consequences, and I was harming more and more people. I was so selfish and self-centered when I got in here, I thought my drinking was my business. And if I want to drink, leave me alone, it's my business. I never realized till I got sober all the people I had harmed and all the lives I had touched in a negative and hurtful way as a result of that. And so I did get the first step down and I had a real problem with God. God was a real problem for me. It's not that I didn't believe in God, I believed in a punishing, vengeful God. God was out to get me. And it's because I was closed-minded. Because I, I had the 911 God. I had the emergency God. I had the God get me out of this one. And I remember when the cops were pulling me through the window, um, when the chase ended, which I thought they were a little bit overreacting. But when they did that, I remember you know, praying, God, get me out of this one. And looking back, that was probably the best day of my life because God did get, get me out of that one. Because jail's like adult timeout. And that was the only way I was gonna stop drinking. You know, when you're a little kid, you sit in the corner. When you're a dog, you sit in jail. And um, it was adult timeout for me. I needed that timeout because there was no other way I was gonna stop. There was no other way I was gonna stop. And, and so when I shared this with my sponsor, you know, he told me that I just had to become willing to believe. And I was convinced on page 47 of the big book, it doesn't say that. It says, you know, when, when you believe in God, you're well on your way. That's what I thought it says. And it doesn't say that. It says if, you know, if you believe in a higher power or, 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 become, or you can become willing to believe. And I needed to pray for the willingness to be willing. But here's what happened. I had a sponsor who I love very much. And one of the reasons I asked him to sponsor me is he had a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. 
and he had been sober a long, long time. And I knew his story, and his story was a lot worse than my story. And um, I knew something. He believed very deeply. And so I sort of believed in him because he believed. And he made me believe in God. And thank God he did. And it took time. It took a long, long time. Um, when I got to the third step, um, the problem I had was the trust issue with God about, I'm, I'm a control freak, I want to control the outcome with everything. And all the third step to me was, is okay, I've made this decision. And he explained to me, you really haven't done anything because you haven't done the rest of the steps. But he did talk to me a little bit about free will. And what he explained to me was, is that God gives each and every one of us free will. And we can do good things with it, or we can do bad things with it. God would never take that gift back away from me once he's given it to me. So if somebody does terrible things, that's just they're using their free will in a bad manner. And we have that choice, and that's our choice. And that, that's going to come back in here very soon, and that was a very important part of my sobriety. Um, you know, the, the, when I got to my fourth and fifth steps, and it, it took me, I was thinking 15 months over before I would do them, and he just said, well, now we're going to do those. The problem was my thinking. My thinking was so, so distorted. Um, my problem, it says, you know, it says on page 23, our problem centers mainly in our mind. And I was out of my mind, and all my thoughts were, um, you were the problem. Um, I had lots of fears, lots, and I didn't have resentments. I mean, I had some rage and hate and just awful, terrible things. And um, I got through those. I got through those. And um, it, it revealed to me that I needed to straighten up my thinking. And I was able to do that. And um, I got to six and seven. And nothing had changed. I mean, my life was getting better. I was out of the homeless shelter. And I got my first job, and I was making seven fifty an hour, and, and, and God has a great sense of humor. I ended up working for a company that used to work for me when I had my company. And so that was a lot of um, humble pie that I got fed. And I remember I told my sponsor I wanted to start my own business, and he said, you know what, you don't, know, you don't play well with others. You have to learn how to work with others sober. Because the only way you got by was uh, because um, of your drinking. Because my attitude with my employees were, you know, if you had to work with these idiots and morons, you'd be drinking after work every night too. You know, that was just my attitude about it, you know. Um, so I did those and I got the six and seven and this is what's going on. I'm, I'm three years sober, I'm driving like a maniac. I'm getting speeding tickets, I'm flying, and I mean, I'm making 750 an hour. I can well afford speeding tickets, right? <laughs> Right, right. But what's the solution to my problem? We just put the car insurance in someone else's name. Register the car in someone else's name. And that's what I did. Um, so I'm driving like a maniac. You know, I think they should have Gary's Lane. You know, that left lane, they should just have a sign. That's Gary's Lane. And you all drive over here because Gary needs that lane. You know, because I'm a very important person. Uh, I might have just come up with the solution to Middle East peace. Get out of my way because I need to get, get going here. Um, I'm at the Wegmans line. I'm in the seven item line. I'm counting the items in front of me. The woman's got 10. It says cash only. She's writing a check. I'm out of my mind. I am just out of my mind. Now, the good news is, is I have this whole thing happen up here. You know, I'm thinking, I, you know, you think all the things you're gonna do, I don't do them. 
but I am just so restless, irritable, and discontented. And I'm in the program, I'm sober, um, and this is what, so I call my sponsor and he says, all right, great, pick me up in a half hour, we'll go over to Park Ridge Men's Meeting. You know, I'm, you know, and I'm thinking, all right, so I do that. So I'm calling him up, I'm telling him what these people are doing to me. He goes, all right, great, pick me up in a half hour, we'll go over to the jail meeting. I'm thinking, my God, I know he's old, now he's going deaf. You know, he's just, what's there something wrong here? You know, because I was just obsessed with me. I was just so selfish and self-centered. And see, I suffer from the bondage of self. It's my bondage that's killing me. And my will, when it's self-will, it's dishonest, it's self-seeking, and it's resentful. And when I'm doing God's will, it's honest, it's giving, and it's forgiving. And I struggle mightily with some of those sometimes. And so um, a tragedy strikes. Uh, my sponsor was a landlord and um, he uh, got jumped and robbed for $8. And uh, they beat him really bad, two guys. And uh, I'm at St. Mary's and uh, this is back in the day. And uh, I had taken him to the Sunday meeting. There used to be a Sunday AA meeting at St. Mary's Hospital. And I wheeled him down there and he was, he just wanted to go to a meeting. That's all he cared about. He's all black and blue and he's burst. Next day I go up to see him for lunch. And while I'm there, a blood clot breaks off from his leg, goes into his heart and he dies before my eyes. And um, that man did so much for me. And yet I was just full of rage. I just wanted these guys to just, I had all sorts of terrible things I wanted to do to them. So I'm at the wake and uh, a guy I met at the academy group comes, <laughs> comes into the room, he's dressed like out of the Sopranos. He's got the long trench coat on, he's got the black suit, he probably doesn't remember, he had a black tie and a black uh, shirt, and, you know, and he's got the hat. And he comes over to me and he said, uh, how you doing? I said, I'm not doing well. And he goes, you know, you are like the luckiest guy. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, don't you understand? God put that man in your path when you needed him the most. <laughs> and that was really important to me. <laughs> and he, <laughs> Breathe here. He gave me his number, and uh, he's been my sponsor ever since. And he's a totally different sponsor. And what happened after that, you know, I'm in mourning and I'm in grieving, and he said, Why don't we grab a sandwich over at Midtown Plaza? And I show up, and uh, my sponsor just passed away. And, uh, you know, I'm expecting a lot of sympathy. And uh, <laughs> the first thing he says to me is, he, the first thing he says to me, you know, if you're going to be in business, you have to dress a little bit better than you're dressed. And I think, okay. And then the next thing he says, what step are you on? I go, listen, I'm grieving. You're, you're not paying attention here. I'm grieving. And he said, I said the A step. And he said, well, you know, I think we need to get moving here. You know, why don't you finish that list up this week? And we'll meet next week for lunch. And we'll talk about that ninth step. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this isn't good. And here's why it wasn't good. I was living a phony life. I was being a total phony in AA. 
um, for a number of reasons. Um, I was working the steps, I was staying sober, and the, my first sponsor taught me that service work keeps us sober, and I was very active in service work. He took me to a treatment meeting every week. He introduced me to the jail meetings at Monroe County Jail. Um, and I, looking back, the reason he had me doing things with others was to just get out of my own way, because I, I am the problem today. I am the problem today. And, um, but the reason I was being dishonest was that, you know, the car insurance is in someone else's name. The registration's in someone else's name. I've got my rg is in someone else's name. The phone company's in someone else's name. I've got no bank accounts, you know. And I'm trying to explain this to him when we sit down for a ninth step. is like I don't really exist in the eyes of the government because, well, I owe him maybe $180,000. And, uh, okay. And what about those things? Well, I might owe RNG a couple thousand, and um, I owe the phone company a couple thousand, and I also stole from a client for about $30,000. And see, my attitude with the services was, with like rg &E, I already got that service, okay? I'll pay for a new service, but you know, I paid some of the old bills, so they should magically forgive it, you know? Come on. And um, that just, you know, wasn't gonna cut it with him. And, um, so I wasn't making a lot of money. The business had started, but, uh, and also um, I owed a big amends to my family. So I, uh, I didn't want to go deal with the IRS and he, he offered to go with me and I, I went to the IRS and uh, that got paid off. That got paid off like two years ago. Just by working this program, I, I paid that off. As a matter of fact, the last payment they called and they waived it. They just couldn't believe that I paid it off. And they said, you know what, you're all done. And, uh, and the funny part of that is one time I came home and I was on the payment plan, I'd worked out with them and a letter had come in the mail. My wife sees it and opens it and it says, I owe the IRS maybe $178,000. Well, she sees this and like, she's like, oh my God, I go, oh, it can't be more than 175. I mean, don't worry about it, you know? And, uh, and I've made all those other amends and I made the amend, it was funny about the, the client um, I, del I, I delivered that check in person on the first of the month every month for 30 months, a thousand a month. And, um, and I wasn't making a lot of money, um, but that's what I did. I, I first wanted to do it by phone, you know? And, you know, my sponsor, but did you harm them by phone? You know, how are you gonna make the amends by phone? <laughs> um, but the problem was, see, I had to clean up my side of the street because I wasn't sleeping well. I was restless, irritable, and discontented. I, was ha I wasn't having dreams, I was having nightmares. I was having nightmares about the people I had harmed. I couldn't look the world in the eye. When I'd walk down the street, I'd stare down because I was in fear. I was living in fear because I had been dishonest. I didn't clean that mess up. And so therefore I was terrified people were gonna find out that I, I was wherever I was and somehow they were gonna get whatever I had. Um, because I didn't want to own up to it. And so those all got done. But the biggest one was my dad. Um, I'm blessed that I was able to make an amends to my dad. And uh, what I didn't understand about my dad, I had, a, I had a resentment about my dad. And I had harmed my dad in a lot of ways. And um, the way I harmed my dad is I robbed him of happiness and peace of mind. I stole serenity from my father. He was up nights when I was in high school because I didn't come home nights. And he'd wait up for me and I wouldn't show. And he was working 12 hour days. 
And I really made it hard on him. And I couldn't see my part in that. And I had that explained to me. And I flew down to Florida and was there for a week. And we, uh, my dad, my, my parents would not talk to me for the first two years in the program. And then after that, it was very, very uh, superficial. But I was able to build that relationship with my father. And, um, and it was a great relationship. For guys, we actually talked more than just about sports. And, uh, and that meant a lot to me with my dad. And I'm so very blessed that AA gave me the opportunity to do that while he was living. It, it really meant a lot to me. Um, and that was very important to me in my life. Um, what I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is that this is a program where I have to learn how to live sober. And that's what that 10 step is about for me today. It's learning how to live sober. Um, people die, relationships end, people get sick, businesses fail, and can I demonstrate any sense of dignity and grace through all of it? And um, I'm going to share this. This is going to be hard. My dad passed away a couple weeks ago, suddenly, unexpectedly. I was the first one in the family to find out. I was actually on the phone with the hospital. My mom got lost going to the hospital, and my brother was not. He was in class. My brother's gone back to school to get a PhD at Syracuse. And... Um, so I'm on the phone, the nurse says, Gary, we tried everything, we did, your, your father is gone. And so I hung up the phone and I knew I needed to talk to my wife and my sponsor and my brother. The phone rings. It's PJ from Buffalo. PJ starts the phone call by saying, start, I didn't, I said, hello, and he goes, Gary, it's PJ. And I pause. He goes, I want to thank you and your wife so much for coming to Buffalo to see me. It really meant a lot for me that you came up to Buffalo and to spend time with me. And I was able to introduce you to one of my AA friends. And you were able to spend time at my house and meet my wife. I met PJ in 1995 at the state prison. And PJ went on to say, um, I just want to let you know how much it meant to me that I knew you would be there every month. Because he did, he was did about 22 years, and he, he just got out about a year ago. And so he goes, how are you? And I go, PJ, my dad just passed, I just found out. He said, well, why don't I just drive to Rockster to be with you, because you've always been there for me. And it gets better. So I tell him, I have to make some phone calls, and that's really nice. I put down the phone, I start bawling, the phone rings. It's Jim Keck. Jim goes, PJ just called me. And uh, I'll come right over because uh, I want to be for you. Because I met Jim in Attica State Prison in 1995 and he just got out. And he goes, you were there for us. And that's how alcoholics not us works. That's how it works is that somehow we're given a gift that we can stay sober and help another alcoholic achieve sobriety, or I can go and do my own thing. You know, I can come into these rooms, stop drinking, and then I just go and do my own thing. I leave the place that gave, my, that gave me my life back. And it's baffling to me. I mean, people get everything back as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous, and all of those things take them away from AA. 
And what I've learned in AA is that when I'm practicing our primary purpose, which is to stay sober and help another alcoholic, I, I'm in very good space. I get out of my head. When I got here this morning and, and I'm part of the committee and um, I was helping set up this morning, I'm counting the coat hangers on the coat rack. <laughs> and all of a sudden I discover there are more hangers on the right side of the coat racks than on the left sides. And then someone in the committee sees me doing this and said, there's some more in the back of the coat room if you'd like to get them and figure that out. And all of a sudden the tiny boy said, Gary, stop it. Stop it, just stop it. But then a couple friends of mine showed up in AA and, um, and everything was better. Everything was better. And, and that's how it works for me in AA. I am just so, so very blessed to have a place that I can go and share my problems and share my experience and share a solution and know that it works. Because I've had that spiritual awakening. I didn't have the spiritual experience that they talk about. I didn't have the Bill's bright white light experience. I had the experience of the huge emotional displacements and the upheavals where those old thoughts and ideas get thrown out and they're replaced by a whole new set of ideas and concepts. And thank God I'm not ignorant anymore. Thank God I didn't dismiss this place without even trying it. You know, change all begins with taking a chance. And I decided to take a chance on the people in these rooms. And these people brought me to God and God has given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I want to thank you. Thank you. I'm Patty. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm grateful to be sober. I'm grateful to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank the committee for inviting me and giving me an opportunity to participate in my recovery with you this weekend. Um, for those of you who have been participating here since the beginning, I just want to tell you, if you have attention deficit disorder and you get through listening before I'm done talking, you just feel free to leave. Um, <laughs> it has been a very busy weekend. I, uh, you pack an awful lot into an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, I can tell you that. I want to thank Kathy for meeting me at the airport uh, yesterday and giving me a walking tour of the Denver airport parking lot. Um, <laughs> she could not have parked any further from, uh, from the baggage claim than she did. And uh, we were walking through and walking and walking and walking through the parking lot. She seemed to know where she was going. And I was following about 12 steps behind because um, I was having a little trouble breathing. I live at sea level. <laughs> and um, she, apparently we found the truck, so she did obviously know where we were going seven and a half miles after we started from the... So I'd like to thank her for that. I. Um... <laughs> I do, I was having a problem last night. I was exhausted and I couldn't figure out why. I thought I'd been bit by a TC fly or something. I, I was just having a really hard time staying awake and then I thought, well, it must have been the pasta. The cheese was too rich. I mean, I'm very anal. I try and figure these things out. And then somebody finally suggested it was at the altitude and they suggested I drink a ton of water. And so I've been drinking a ton of water. Now I'm still tired, but I have to pee all the time. So. <laughs> Well, they assured me I would get used to the altitude just about the time I landed at LAX tomorrow, so, um, so I'm grateful for that. I, uh, I often wonder how I should start my talk, and uh, you know, when I'm saying that, I'm thinking, well, I already started it, so uh, 
But I was in the Al-Anon meeting, I was sitting over there and I was listening to Dolores and I was, of course, every once in a while I'd look up at that big screen. I was not thinking about Dolores, I was thinking about me. And um, wondering if I had time to go have a facial before I got up here. <laughs> that is just a little intimidating, I wanna, I wanna tell you. On the other hand, it could be a good thing. I did take everything out of my pockets. I have a tendency to touch myself while I'm talking. And, um, and at other times too, just depending on my mood, but. but uh, one time I was talking at an AA event and I was touching myself and I was you know, kind of having a good time and I had a lighter in my pocket and somehow the lighter ignited and I was wearing silk that evening. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with silk, but it ignites really quickly. And, one spark in that lighter and I just it burst into flames behind the podium and I am CPR first aid certified so I know it's stop, drop and roll. I'm also a compulsive talker so as I was going to the floor I grabbed the microphone and I... I just kept talking while I rolled myself out and uh, stood back up, mostly naked and finished my talk. I was thinking the, I was thinking while I was sitting here because I think all the time. That was one of the one of the things that worried me about this altitude business. I was of course been obsessed, wondering if I'm getting enough oxygen to my brain um, because I think all the time. And when your lack of oxygen could slow down my thinking process, so I was concentrating on how well I was thinking so I would know if the altitude was really affecting me. And I was thinking about. A number of years ago, I was uh, loitering around in a, in a drugstore. I like to loiter around the pharmacy area where they're dispensing the medications. And I was, I watched them get their pills, you know, in the different colors, and I fantasized about what that stuff would do. And I was loitering around there, and as I was loitering, I noticed there was a display of um, seeds. There were vegetable and fruit seeds, and, and they were on sale, 10 packs for a dollar. And I thought, you know, I've never had a hobby. People in AA are always talking about their hobbies, and I've never really had a hobby. Maybe I could have a garden. It would be like a really cool hobby. So I thought about what 10 packets of seeds to buy. It was a big decision, and it took me, oh, probably an hour before I finally picked the 10 packs of seeds that I was going to start my new hobby, my garden with. I bought the seeds, I went home, I went out to my backyard, and I was looking around the backyard, trying to decide where to put my garden. Well, the backyard was pretty well growing with things. There really wasn't any place for my garden, but I had a a slope that ran the, the length of my property, and there was nothing growing on the slope, and I thought, well, that would be a good place for my garden. But then I had a little concern, because I thought, if I plant the seeds in the slope, when I water it, how am I gonna know that the water actually goes down to the seeds? I mean, it'll just roll off to the slope, and I won't really know if it's going down to the seeds or not. So I pondered that for a while, and I'm not a mason, but I figured if I went to Home Depot and got a truckload of brick, I could build a wall. So I went and got this brick and I built a retaining wall. And you know, if you're not a mason, it, that, mixing up that cement is really difficult to get it to the right consistency. And you really should not try putting it on that scaffold and throwing it up and catching it and slapping it down on the brick. That, I think that takes a lot of practice, but I, I'm building this wall and I built it. And I have my disease manifests itself. I tend to start quick, but then I get bored. And I, I kind of got bored a little too soon with this wall, but I finished the wall 
And when I looked at it, it wasn't real straight. It was kind of had some curves in it, but if you put a lot of stucco on it, you can straighten it right out. So I, I stuck up the heck out of that thing and I got it straightened out. And then I bought a truckload of dirt and I filled it in because I was gonna like level off my slope. Well, I had pooped out on the brick thing a little early and so when I filled it in with dirt, it still sloped. It wasn't as severe, but it was still a slope. So I went to Home Depot and got another truckload of brick and about halfway up, I built another wall so I had a tiered garden. When I got done with that, I'm looking at it, and then I start thinking, you know, I'm not home a lot. I work a full-time job. I go to AA meetings every night. I sponsor women. I'm away from home a lot of weekends. Who's going to water my garden? So I'm not a plumber, but I tapped into the water main. <laughs> and I brought, I brought a water line out to my new garden area, and I laid some drip hose in my garden. So I figured that way it could get water, not an electrician, but I tapped into the electric and I brought, I brought electricity out there so that I could put a timer on the whole thing so that the timer could be set and my garden would be watered. And I figured as long as I bring the electricity out, I might as well put some Malibu lights just for... I put the Malibu lights, planted my seeds. It cost me thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to plant a dollar's worth of seeds. <laughs> because I suffer from alcoholism. I don't suffer from alcoholism. I suffer from alcoholism. And I have alcoholism as badly tonight as I did the day I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I need you. I need you more tonight than I needed you the day I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous because my disease manifests itself differently on a daily basis. But I have alcoholism, so I am so grateful that me and my alcoholism are with you this weekend so that I can get the solutions to the events in my life so that I have an opportunity to live successfully out there. And that's why I come here, is so that I can live successfully out in the world. My sponsor tells me when I do this, I should tell you my name and tell you the truth. <laughs> um, I've already told you my name. I'm going to tell you the truth. And the reason for that is obvious to me. I mean, I didn't know when I was out there practicing, which I think is a really bizarre word for what we do. I needed no practice. I am really, really good at drinking. But when I was out there, I didn't know that what it used to be like was gonna be important. When I was out there, I didn't know. I didn't know that I was gonna be expected to report to you what it used to be like. If I would have known I was going to be here tonight, expected to report to you, I would have paid more attention to my life. <laughs> if I would have known, well, if I'd have known about a fourth and fifth step, I can guarantee you I would not have done some of the things that I did. But, <laughs> but I didn't know that what it used to be like was going to be important. So what I share with you is my perspective of what it used to be like. A lot of what I share with you has been reported to me by other people. And I just have to assume they're telling me the truth. I, I have a job that um, I had to get a fingerprint clearance and uh, uh, when I was, I fingerprint really, really well. I know how to fingerprint. I just know exactly how to roll with it. It's just easy, easy. But I was being fingerprinted and I didn't want to raise any red flags. So I said to the woman who was printing me, I said, how far back are you going to check? And she looked me in the eye and said, from the day you were born. The book says more will be revealed. It doesn't say how. <laughs> um, and I thought, hey, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a fifth step, only it's in the wrong order because they're going to know about it before I do. And uh, I can tell you, I know a lot more about what it used to be like having had that clearance than I knew before I was fingerprinted. So a lot of this has just been reported to me by other people, and uh, and I'm, I'm just going to believe that it's that it's the truth. I uh, I didn't have my first drink until I was 13 years old. I'm really sorry I waited that long, but um, I had no idea. I had no idea what alcohol would do to me or for me. As far as I know, I had, um, I just didn't know anything about alcohol. I had never made any, I'm never gonna drink promises, and I had never had any, oh, I can't wait until I can drink ideas. I just never thought about alcohol one way or another. And yet, when I was 13 years old, I was on a camping trip at the beach in Southern California, and I remember when we got into the tent that night, I had a bottle of vodka in my pillowcase. And to this day, I don't know where it came from. I always believed it was the grace of God, but I could never be sure. But, but I remember being excited about having it. And I asked if anybody wanted it, and they didn't. And the reason they gave me for not wanting it was all we had to mix with it was grape soda and root beer. And I said, well, so what? And I took off the top, and I drank half the bottle, and I looked around the tent, nothing had got different, nothing had changed. So I drank the second half of the bottle, and that was to be the end of my social drinking. Never again. <laughs> Never again after that day did I ever offer anybody a drink out of my bottle. <laughs> and I don't know about anybody else, but I never had resentments until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and one of my early resentments in Alcoholics Anonymous was I heard you talk about your first drink and you talked about taking the drink. And you talked about you felt it in your mouth and you described it as you felt it go down your throat. And you, you talked about it hitting your stomach and you, you described how it exploded from your stomach and went to your fingernails and your toenails and you talked about your pimples falling off and you grew up two or three inches and you lost 20 pounds and you became Prince Charles and Lady Di and wonderful things happened to you. And that wasn't the case for me. I had my first drink of alcohol and absolutely nothing happened to me for about 15 minutes. <laughs> and at the end of the 15 minutes, the only thing that happened to me is I had to go to the bathroom. And it's my belief tonight that if you were to drink a quart of anything, in about 15 minutes, he would have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I got out of the tent and I shuffled down to the outhouse and I went in and went to the bathroom. And when I got done and went to get up, I realized I was absolutely, totally, 100% paralyzed to the toilet seat. <laughs> I couldn't move. Um, I couldn't even blink. I didn't feel my heart beating and I was overcome with a sense of fear. And of course, the fear was that somebody else was going to have to come use that outhouse and there I was, paralyzed to the toilet seat. Later in my drinking, I did discover that two people can use the same toilet at the same time. If the second person is very careful about what they're doing, but I, I didn't know that at 13, so uh, I sat there and I, I, had a, I intuitively knew that the body was made up of energy and I somehow figured that if I could gather my energy, I would be all right. So I suppose it was my first formal meditation because I sat, I sat and I gathered my energy. And when it seemed to be all in one place, when it seemed to be sort of centrally located, I just fell off the toilet, out the door, into the sand, and started crawling back to the tent. Now, of course, since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, I've discovered that my entire problem that night was my attitude. If my attitude would have been right, I could have had a fantasy. I was in the Marines, I was being dive bombed as I was trying to get back to safety. And, and if my attitude would have been right, it could have been a wonderful experience. Now, in my own defense, I always have to say that my pants were still down on my ankles. I had started to get sick, I couldn't quite get through it, I couldn't get around it, and I think under those circumstances it's a little difficult to have a good attitude. I, I did somehow manage to get back to the tent, I fell in and I passed out. And when I came to in the morning, I realized nobody was in the tent with me and I couldn't figure out where they went until my eyes cleared enough that I realized I'd been sick all night long. I'd hit the top of the tent, the side of the tent, the floor of the tent, 
I hadn't missed a square inch, and quite frankly, I didn't want to be in the tent either, so I got out of there. And that was my first drink of alcohol. It was the most wonderful, incredible, marvelous, magnificent, fabulous spiritual experience I'd ever had. And, and it must have been because I put some amount of alcohol into my body from that day until the day I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't always get drunk, and I didn't always drink the kinds of things that you would classify as a beverage. I drank a lot of, uh, I drank a lot of vanilla extract. I used to buy it by the six pack. I remember the day the guy at the market, I remember the day the guy at the market called me off and he said, Howdy, I can't let you buy vanilla extract anymore. He said, I can't believe anybody bakes as much as you do. And I got cut off from that supply. I drank a lot of mouthwash. I drank a lot of perfume. Taboo became my after-dinner drink of choice. I, um, I still have a weakness. If you're wearing it, I may follow you too closely and laugh at your neck. I, I'm the kind of person that came to your house and ate and drank everything in your bathroom. That's, um... And I don't know, this is unusual. I don't know there's anything unusual about this. I think I drink because I want to drink. I don't know that I don't have a choice. I don't know that at 13 years old, I put alcohol into an alcoholic body. And from that day on, I had no choice. I think I drink because I want to drink. And I don't know that I'm living any different than anybody else. And when you think about it, how would we know? I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but um, I was a bar drinker. I was a living room drinker, an alley drinker, car drinker, a dumpster drinker, an office drinker, an alley drinker. I didn't really specialize, I just drank. But but I love bars, and I love sleazy, sleazy, nasty bars. I love those kind of bars that have sawdust on the floor. I like them when the mirrors are cracked, so you kind of have to dip around to see yourself in there. I, I like them when they're full of smoke and they have that wonderful used booze urine smell that I... I salivate still when I think of it. I love that. I love that smell, but... Um, but you know what fascinates me about those sleazy places? In retrospect, I am fascinated by the quality of people who drank there. There were, um, there were CEOs of really big companies. There were bank presidents. There were admirals in the Air Force. There were neurosurgeons. I mean, that's what they said they were. I, I never told a lie in a bar. I, I, but we weren't sitting around there having conversations like, what do you prefer, the red mouthwash or the green? What's your preference, Chantilly or Aqua Velva? We weren't having those kinds of conversations, so it doesn't occur to me I'm living any different than anybody else. I think I drink because I want to drink. I don't know that I don't have a choice. I had an opportunity to go to college. I graduated from college with a 3.8 grade point average. I share that with you because it almost killed me in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a chronic, hopeless, helpless alcoholic. I'm drinking on a daily basis, and I graduate from college with a 3.8 grade point average. And when I came here, I told you I was too smart to be an alcoholic. Nobody with a 3.8 grade point average could possibly be an alcoholic. I, I, um, I got my degree, I stayed in, at San Diego State and took classes for a master's degree. I left San Diego State because I'd been offered a job in Chico, California, which is as far north as you can get and still be in California. And that's the reason I left school and put everything I owned in my car, took two cases of beer, two bottles of booze, and I headed north. I got 80 miles north when I was out of booze and I was thirsty. I, uh, I pulled off the freeway, I have a sense I can find the sleaziest bar in town without even looking for it. I pulled into the parking lot of this place, I walked in, it was full of smoke, it had that wonderful used booze, urine smell. Willie Nelson was singing on the jukebox and I knew I was home. That's as far north as I ever got, 80 miles from where I started from. Alcohol had become my mother, my father, my friend, my, my lover, my companion, my support, and at some point it had turned, and I've always believed it was in the middle of my first drink, but at some point it had turned and began to strip me of self-esteem, self-worth, dignity, decency, honesty, integrity, pride, all the things we have going for us as human beings, and, and by the time I got here, it had taken it all, and I didn't have a clue. I, got a job in the profession of my choice. I rose very quickly to the top 
And that too almost killed me in Alcoholics Anonymous because I told you I was too successful to be an alcoholic. I told you about the trophies and the plaques. What I didn't tell you about, I was in the newspaper business. And I know tonight it was because I, God gave me a gift. We often won awards, but we also were a community paper, so we often gave awards. And what I didn't tell you about was the times that I would come out of a blackout, standing behind a podium much like this in a room full of people, holding an award, not knowing if I was giving it or receiving it. <laughs> and so I would say thank you, and I would go sit down, and then somebody would elbow me and tell me I was presenting it to the Kiwanis Club, and I'd have to get up and start over again. And, and I didn't tell you that, I just hope you guys be successful to be an alcoholic. And by the way, I love blackouts. I'm a blackout drinker. I love blackouts. I love blackouts. And they're in a meeting and they're and they're panicking and they're talking about life and other reasons panicking and they're talking about life and other reasons panicking. Next thing I knew, I wouldn't order after two and I don't know where that course thing I knew, I wouldn't want I know where my wife's name Angela. I've come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Please help me work the 12 steps I, and so I can recover. I, I don't understand that. I love blackouts. There was nothing more exciting to me than leaving work on August 2nd, going back to work on August 14th, and discovering I've been there the entire time. <laughs> It makes the time between paychecks really short. <laughs> I wish I could have blackouts sober. I love blackouts, but um, blackouts didn't bother me at all. Bring on the blackouts. I, um, I arrived in, and I have to tell you this, I'm having a major hot flash. <laughs> Carl talked about taking his hearing aids off. I will take my clothes off. I'm telling you. No booze is one thing. No booze and no estrogen will kill you. I'm telling you, I don't mind bearing children, but I think men ought to go through menopause. I, uh... oh, well, well, I got sidetracked. Now you have way more information about me than you need to have, I'm sure. I, um, I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous as a result of what I pray God was my last drunk driving assault. Um, another resentment I got in Alcoholics Anonymous was I discovered you can get arrested for a single charge of drunk driving. I never knew that I always got arrested for drunk driving assault. And it had something to do with how I got out of the car. And here's the thing, I'm, I'm driving down the street, I am always minding my own business and I don't know why the cops are always looking for me. But I'm driving down the street and the light comes on behind me and I pull over. The officer walks up to the, to the car door and the first thing I do is slam the car door open. Now, my intent is to knock him in the private parts, but um, <laughs> men are a little fussy about their private parts, so as the door's flying open, he jumps back. And when he jumps back, it's really a good thing because now he's far enough away that I can get him in focus. And I think, one of you, one of me. One of you, one of me, I think I can take him. <laughs> one of you, one of me, I think I'll try, and I would go out the car for him, and it would be a really good fight for a couple of minutes. And I was a lot younger then, but it was a really good fight, but I would never remember that he had a friend back at the car. <laughs> And the friend had a radio, and the friend would call some more friends, and pretty soon it'd be three or four of them, one of me, well, and now it's not fair anymore, and I say, uncle. And the next time the light comes on behind me, I pull over, the officer walks up, I slam the car door open, he jumps back, he gets far enough away, I can get him in focus, and I think, one of him, one of me. One of him, one of me, I think I can take him. One of him, one of me, I think I'll try, and I would go for him. And it would be a good fight for a couple of minutes, but I wouldn't remember the friend, the radio, and the friend's friend. Pretty soon it'd be four or five of them, one of me, it's not fair anymore, I say uncle. The next time the light comes on, and I don't do that one, two, or three times, I do that three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve times. I never remember the friend, the radio, and the friend's friends. <laughs> and when you do that, they don't care that they 
won the fight. They attached an assault charge. Drunk driving assault, drunk driving assault. And I'm the kind of person, I get released from jail, I always get the arrest report and I read it. And I find out where I made my mistake. that part so that next time I'll get that part right. I always knew there'd be a next time. I always knew because it was you and they and them. It was circumstances and conditions. It was the cops. It was a lot of things. Never occurred to me anything to do with alcohol. Absolutely never occurred to me that had anything to do with alcohol. So I practice field sobriety tests a lot. I am really good at field sobriety tests. And on what I pray God was my last drunk driving assault, I was doing really well. In fact, I commented to the officer that I thought he should give me an A+. Plus. I mean, by then I knew how to walk. I knew touch your finger to your nose meant this. It didn't mean that. Um, and I was doing a swell job. Now, at the end of the test, the officer asked me to say the ABCs backwards. Well, the time before I had responded with, well, I can't even do that sober. Well. <laughs> Just confess, right? So, so this time when he asked me to say the ABCs backwards, I said, okay, and I turned around. <laughs> See, you think it's funny. He wasn't even mildly amused. <laughs> I was turned around, he cuffed me, he took me to Orange County Jail, and he put me in a cell with criminals. And uh, up until that time, I had not suffered any consequences from drunk driving. In the state of California, I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, but they just didn't have their underwear in such a knot about drunk driving. But, I mean, I lost my driver's license, but so what? I never had a problem driving a car without it. I, um, I had a little difficulty cashing a check, but it was never difficult to drive a car. But I never really had any other consequences. But at the end of my drinking, the state of California was getting in their underwear in a knot about people barreling down the freeway at 80 miles an hour, blowing a .42 on their breathalyzer, and, uh, and, and they were really getting upset. So. Uh, at, at, at my last one, I was 26 years old. I was in court, drunk. It's the only way I went to court. It's the only way I went to the grocery store to work, the laundromat, to school. It's the only way I did anything. Stood there drunk that morning, being sentenced to 10 years in prison. And in the middle of sentencing me, the expression on the judge's face changed and the tone of his voice got different. And I know he was as surprised at what he was saying as I was at what I was hearing. Because in the middle of sentencing me, he looked at me and he said, I know this won't work for you, but I'm gonna offer you an alternative. And part of that alternative was meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wish I could tell you that I left the courtroom, I came here, I looked at the 12 steps, I knew there was a solution to the problems of my life. I worked them all in a week and skyrocketed to recovery. Um, sometimes I do tell that, but that is not my story. <laughs> I stood there and I thought about it. Jail alternative, jail alternative. I'm trying to make a decision. The public defender's putting his elbow in my ribs and I'm thinking, jail alternative. And in that, while I was trying to figure it out, I had what I know tonight was a moment of clarity because as clear as I knew anything, I knew that morning that if I went to jail, I would either die in the institution or I'd become institutionalized for life. And I didn't know why I knew that that morning, but I knew it as clear as anything. And I took the alternative and I left the courtroom and I drank for four more months. In retrospect, I can tell you I didn't drink a greater quantity. Physically, it would have been impossible to drink a greater quantity of alcohol. But I drank with a sense of urgency um, that I had never known before. And I drank with a desperation that I had never known. And on October 4th, 1975, the day before I was to go back to court to tell the judge what it was I was doing with the alternative he gave me, on that day I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was a speaker meeting and uh, I didn't, as far as I know, I'd never heard the words Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know what you people were gonna do to me or for me. And I went to the meeting that night and I sat in the back of the room and I cannot tell you who talked that. I heard two things. 
I heard we don't drink between meetings. Well, I quickly looked around and I didn't see any of them drinking in the meeting. And I thought, if you're not drinking in the meeting and you don't drink between the meetings, when do you drink? This made me, this made me really nervous and that I could not figure out why the judge sent me to a place where people didn't, a place where people didn't drink. I would have understood if he sent me to Sears School of Safe Driving. I did not understand why he sent me to a place where people, people didn't drink. The other thing that I heard was that the answers were in this book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So after the meeting, I stole the book. I mean, God knows I need to have the answers. I can't tell you how irritated I was because when I got home that night, I read that book. Not only could I not find the answers in there, I couldn't even find the questions. And I thought, oh dear God, I've stolen the wrong book and I'm gonna have to go back and get the right one. And <laughs> Wednesday, with four days of sobriety, I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous to get the answer book. I don't think it matters why you come back. I think what's important is that you come back. I don't think it matters what your motive is or what your intention are. Intention is. I think it matters what your action is. Wednesday, with four days of sobriety, I came to my second meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was a small discussion meeting. And in that meeting, I heard, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it. And I looked around the room, and I looked around the room, and I looked around the room, and I could not figure out what it was you had that was so hot that I should be willing to go to any length to get it. I mean, look at the person next to you, unless you're sleeping with them, what is it? I mean, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. And then I saw him. And I truly believe there's a him for each of us. This guy was a skinny little fellow. He was bald-headed. He wore baggy pants. Not like the, I don't know about the kids in uh, Colorado, but I work with kids. I work with teenagers who wear pants and have absolutely no relationship to their body size. <laughs> They wear pants that are so big, I'm forever telling them they could put a homeless family in there with them. But um, his weren't quite that baggy, but they were baggy. And he had tennis shoes on with no shoelaces, only the holes were there where they should have been, and he nodded out during the meeting. And I quickly assessed the situation. I figured he was shooting heroin, because folks who shoot heroin nod out. And I could probably do this thing and not drink if I could shoot a little heroin. So I found out where he worked, and the next day I went down to his office, and I said, Dick, I have to do this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous to stay out of jail, and I don't know how to do it. And he told me if I would go to meetings and read the book and talk to other alcoholics and not drink, I'll guarantee you won't get drunk. And if you don't get drunk, your life will get different. And I'm grateful he told it to me that way. He didn't tell me my life would get better. He didn't tell me my family life would get better, my job life would get better, my finances would get better, my relationships would get better, my sex life would get better. He didn't tell me anything that would get better, and I'm grateful. Because none of it has. So, a little hope for the newcomer and his former wife. <laughs> but as I stand here tonight, I can tell you from the top of my head to the tip of my toes, I have never had it so good. I have never had it so good. You see, I don't know good from bad for me. I'm going through something I think is good for me and it generally turns out to be bad for me. And I'm going through something I think is bad for me and it generally turns out to be good for me. And I don't know good from bad for me, but I know different. And every area of my life is different than it was the day I walked the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and I have never had it so good. In my perception, and this may or may not be true, this is just my perception of my life, people hurt me all my life. People disappointed me and they let me down. My parents told me they loved me anymore, their love and I to die. Their love was physically, mentally, and emotionally abusive. As a small child, I came to know that you would not be there for me. If you told me you would do something, you weren't gonna do it. As a small child, I learned that people hurt you. And as a small child, I made a decision, I don't want to be hurt anymore. And so as a small child, I began to build a wall between me and you. 
And I built a big brick wall between me and you because I just didn't want to be hurt anymore. And that wall kept you out. And I never knew about that wall because it made me a prisoner inside. I lived behind that wall in isolation and loneliness. And alcohol didn't allow me to come out and play. Alcohol just made it okay for me to be back there. And when you live behind a big wall like that, you don't believe and you don't trust. But for some reason that morning, I believed that old man. And I hadn't believed another human being in a very long time. And I need to tell you that old man who I thought was shooting heroin, the truth was is he was sober longer than I'd been alive. And the reason that he nodded out in meetings is he had something inside that I didn't have a clue as to what it was. He had a serenity and a peace inside. He was right with us, he was right with God, and he was right with himself, and I didn't have a clue as to what that was. But I believed him, and I had the books every night. I'd open it to chapter three, and I'd read the line that says, most of us are unwilling to admit we are real alcoholics. I'd say amen and close the book, and that was reading the book. <laughs> I would go down to the Canyon Club in Laguna Beach where they have AA meetings. I'd have a cup of coffee on the way out. I'd say hi, Jim, to the manager. He'd say hi, Patty, that was talking to another alcoholic. My core program said I had to go to two meetings a week. I thought that was really obsessive, but I was willing to go to any lengths to stay out of jail. So I went to the two meetings a week my core program said I had to go to, and the only thing I did right is I didn't drink. And I didn't drink, and I didn't drink, and I didn't drink. And I was not a happy newcomer. The book talks about we become restless, irritable, and discontent. That's an understatement to what I became. <laughs> the only thing I knew was anger, and I acted it out in violence. I would sit in the back of the meeting, the speaker would be sharing, I didn't like what they were saying, I'd jump up and I would let them know exactly what I thought of what they were saying. It was usually like a string of profanities, but I put them together in such a way that it sounded like a sentence. And I would, and I would just spew it out from the back of the room, and then some little old blue-haired lady would turn around and smile and say, keep coming back, and I... <laughs> I'd wave my court card in her face and I would tell her I didn't have a choice. And I would sit back down until it went off again. And uh, I carried a knife in my boot. I would pull it out. I just wanted a reaction. If somebody would react, I'd clean my fingernails. If nobody reacted, I threw it across the room at the literature rack. I always aimed at the piece of literature remembers I view. I didn't always hit it, but that's what I aimed for. Um, one night a guy shared, he irritated me, he didn't say anything to me. I just took it personally. I jumped him after the meeting. I was beating his head into the concrete floor. Took six guys to get me off of them, and I knew they were going to tell me I had to leave. I thought you had to get. I was trying to get thrown out. It never occurred to me just not to come back. Um, <laughs> and when those guys got me off of them, one of those men looked at me and he said, "Howie, next time you feel that volcano about to explode, so just put your hands in your pockets and don't touch another human being." And I wondered how he knew about the volcano. Nobody had ever talked to me about the volcano before, but that's what I had inside of me. I had a volcano, and when it erupted, I had to do something. When it erupted, I wanted to see blood, preferably yours. When interrupted, I didn't seem to have any control. And I had to walk around Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time with my hands in my pockets to discover that that anger was a cupboard for a tremendous amount of fear. I was absolutely scared to death. I was afraid of you, I was afraid of life, I was afraid of me. And I had survived in places where you can't survive if you're afraid. And a long time ago, I began to cover that fear with anger and acted out in violence. And that's all I knew when I got here. Um, but I didn't drink, and I didn't drink, and I didn't drink. And I pray God happens to everybody who's knew what happened to me. Eight and a half months away from my last drink, the pain of not drinking and not recovering drove me to my knees. I think the greatest pain that I have ever suffered, and I've been in pain in the last 25 years, I somehow thought, and nobody gave me this information, I just made it up, a lot of things that I think are true, I make up. The difference today is I usually check it with you because most of the time my solutions are worse than the problem. So, but early on I, I thought that if I worked the steps really, really hard with enough passion, if I really, really worked the steps, I would somehow sort of soar above humanness. I would somehow be soaring up here where I would never experience anything that I judge as negative. 
I would never have a feeling that I judged as negative. I would never have any fear, insecurity, self-doubt. I'd never have a flat tire. It would just be like life would be grand. The truth for me in working the steps is I've come into my humanness. And as a human being, I sometimes experience fear, self-doubt. As a human being, sometimes life is painful. But I have never in 25 years experienced the depth of pain that I experienced eight and a half months of not drinking and not recovering. And that pain drove me to my knees. And on my knees, I took the first step of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. I admitted I was powerless over alcohol. That wherever I ingest alcohol, I'm damned to continue to live the same way, day after day after day. That when I drink alcohol, I have no choices. When I drink alcohol, it runs every area of my life. Alcohol controls where I live, where I work, where I play, the people I run with, and eventually the people I run from. I have no choices in my life. Whenever I get into the ring with alcohol, I lose. Whether I'm fighting it because I'm drinking it or I'm fighting it because you're drinking it. Whenever I do battle with alcohol, I lose. That's the powerlessness. And that's my unmanageability. I have no choices in my life when I drink. Alcohol manifests itself in justification, rationalization, and denial. When I drink alcohol, I lose, period. And that was the first step for me. And it took eight and a half months of not drinking for me to get far enough away to see the evidence. You all saw it when I came in. It was piled this high. But you gave me the dignity to do what I had to do. It felt the pain of not drinking and not recovering drove me to my knees. I want to talk about the steps because for me, that's what happened. What it was like, I think we all have the same story, we just acted it out a little bit differently. What happened for me is the 12 steps of recovery. There is no way to get from where I was on October 4th, 1975 to where I am tonight, except through the power and the magic of the 12 steps. And this is just my experience. If, if you have another experience, talk to your sponsor, but um, this, is, <laughs> this is just my experience. And for those of you who are wondering, we will be done on time. I know this is just a, a little, like intermission between dinner and the dance, so not to, not to worry. I'm a loner by nature. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't change your nature. What Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me is it's given me the courage and strength to do the things I need to do in spite of my nature. But I'm a loner by nature. Left to my own devices, I prefer to be alone. I, I hear people say an alcoholic alone is in bad company. I don't believe that. I really am in good company when I'm by myself. I entertain myself beyond anything any of you could ever do for me. <laughs> I, um, I love to read, I like to fish, well, I like to throw and reel. I'm not big on catching because then you have to touch the fish, which is kind of nasty. But... You know you're a loner if you don't like AA potlucks. That's generally the indicator. Um, the book talks about we become disgustingly and dangerously antisocial. I never became that way, started out that way. I have, over the last 25 years, I have developed one social skill. I use it about two this afternoon, I'm fresh out. I have no more. <laughs> say I have no problem with God, but the truth is I have one problem with God. I believe we are all God's children and I've always wanted to be an only child. That's, um, that's the only problem I have with God. But for me, for me being a loner, coming to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity, for me, the power greater than myself was not God. Because you see, being a loner, if I had come to believe that God was going to restore me to sanity, I would have sat on my couch, which is where I prefer to be. God would have flown in, sprinkled me with Sandy, taken off to hang out with you, and that would have been all I would have ever done. And I would be on my couch tonight watching reruns of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. And somebody else would be sharing with you. So for me, I came to believe that the power greater than myself, which would restore me to sanity, and for me, sanity is how I think. I've discovered my thinking is just a little skewed from the rest of the world. That I would be restored to right thinking through taking the action of the steps. You see, I have lived my whole life trying to think my way into right living. That's never worked for me. 
Through taking the action, the steps, I have been able to act my way into right thinking. And that's what I came to believe would happen in step two. Step three, I hear people all the time saying they're having trouble with step three. Or they say, I'm on step three and every day I get up and turn my will and my life over to the care of God except for my sex and finances because I don't want to be born celibate. Um, well, every day I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, but by about noon I take it back. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure those people don't understand the step because the step says make a decision. Here's the decision. How do you want to live? Chronic hopeless, helpless alcoholic or do you want to believe the people in AA are telling you the truth? Incomprehensible demoralization, hope. Despair, hope. It's not a difficult decision. I think I'll go with hope. But the decision, and the book talks about this very clearly, it says something to the effect that although the decision was vital, it had very little permanent effect unless immediately followed by action. The decision for me was the beginning of the surrender, but it didn't take, it had no impact on my life until I took an action. And for me, the first action was the fourth step. And I wrote the fourth step the way the big book says to do it. I made the columns. I wrote down everybody who I resented, which basically turned out to be everybody who breathed air that I thought should have been mine. <laughs> wrote in the second column what they did to me. Well, I wanted to tell you all my life what they did to me. I was sorry I waited this long to do it. I, it was really fun. <laughs> Third column, how it affected me. Well, it affected my security, my self-worth, my self-esteem. Well, no wonder I drank. If all these people did all these things to you, you'd have drank too. Then in my zealousness, I accidentally turned the page of the big book. And after the diagram, hidden in the body of the text, it says, referring to our list again, we put out of our minds the wrongs others had done, and we looked at our part. Well, now it wasn't any fun anymore, but <laughs> I, did that with my, I did that with my resentments, my fears, and my relationships. And for the first time, I saw who Patty really was. He said, I spent my whole life putting on a show for you. Rationalization, justification, and denial. And when I'm explaining it to you, I'm hearing it. When I'm hearing it, I'm believing it. And I have spent my whole life explaining it to you, hearing it, and believing it. My whole life was a show that I believed, and I had no idea who I really was until I did that fourth step. Then I looked at the fifth step and thought it was really, 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 really a good step for those of you who weren't raised Catholic. Those of us who are Catholic, we know about confession, and we know it doesn't work. So, I didn't have to do it. I wasn't going to do it. Put my fourth step in the trunk of my car, and I drove around with a continual sense of impending doom. And of course, the fear was I'd be rear-ended on the freeway, my trunk would fly open, my fourth step would be everywhere, and I had, of course, put my first and last name on every page of that puppy. I just envisioned it flying all over Southern California. And rather than do a fifth step, I just drove, chose to drive around that way for a really long time. And what happened to me is, um, in retrospect, was interesting, because you can go, I went, I'm not suggesting this, so I'll just say it this way, I went a long time between step four and five, by doing this. I would come to a meeting. By now, I'm in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to a meeting every night. I have a sponsor who's a real pain in the ass. I'm thinking about firing her, but I'm you know, looking around for a deaf mute to get instead. And, um, and I'm very active in AA, and I'm sharing at meetings, you know, and I'm discussion meetings, I'm sharing, and, and I'm feeling pretty good. But what it was like for me was this. I don't know if any of you have ever had a really old car that overheats. You got a car that overheats. If you pull over the side of the road and let the radiator cap off, and let some of that steam come out, you can drive for a few more miles. But then it's overheating again, you gotta let the radiator cap off, let some steam out, you can drive for a few more miles. And that's what I was doing in AA, I was sharing a little bit and the meeting was like letting the steam off. I could go for a little while more. Then I'd let the steam off and I could go for a little while more. But like the radiator, eventually, you gotta drain the radiator, you gotta fix it, you gotta refill it. And like that, I finally had to do a fifth step. And I didn't do it with my sponsor because when God was ready, when it was my time, I was visiting a friend in Los Angeles, and we were talking, as we were talking, I realized I was doing a fifth step. 
And I thought, well, if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it right. And I got my four step out of the car and I did my fifth step with her. And when I finished that big brick wall I had built between me and you, one brick came out of that wall. One lousy, crummy brick. <laughs> but every time I've shared with another alcoholic, another brick has come out of that wall. And tonight I have no brick wall between me and you. One brick at a time. Now I have a little styrofoam thing I throw up every once in a while. I went home from doing my fifth step. I did step six and seven by mistake. I didn't mean to recover this quickly, but I just by coincidence opened the big book to the part where it talks about step six and seven and I got lulled into reading it. And when I became aware of what I was reading, I was in the middle of the seven step prayer. And when I became aware of what I was reading, that prayer took the longest journey anything has ever taken for me, the journey from my head to my heart. And I knew I believed it. And I finished reading that prayer and what it says in the book happened to me. I walked through the archway to freedom. I walked away from the person I have been all of my life to start to become the person God intended for me to be. And I believe that's the miracle here. And I think too many people leave before the miracle happens. The miracle for me is I have an opportunity to walk away from the person I've been all of my life. And the best I've ever described myself when I came here was an animal with latent human tendencies. That's what walked the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. But because the steps work and because you've been willing to share with me, I've become very gentle, very loving, very kind, very nurturing. Now they're telling me it's codependency and I have to recover from it. But... <laughs> I love the person who I am. I'm tempted to write a book, Women Who Love Themselves Too Much. I, uh... <laughs> steps eight and nine for me were conventional ways of getting rid of conventional guilt. I felt guilty because I was guilty. I did a lot of things to a lot of people for one more drink. If it came between you and a drink, I took the drink. If it came between a job and a drink, I took the drink. If it came between anything and a drink, I took the drink. I did a lot of things to a lot of people for one more drink. I felt guilty because I was guilty. And I became willing to make amends to the people on my list except for one. And I told my sponsor, under no uncertain terms, I will not make amends to my father. My father's a drunk, he's a Jekyll and Hyde drunk, and I was the target of his abuse. And I am not making amends to my father. And my sponsor told me that was fine. As long as you're willing to pay the price, that's fine. And I said, I'm willing. I don't want to go to the father-daughter banquet. I don't care. And I said about making my amends, and my amends for me were not about sorry. My amends were about living my life differently. And I don't know how to live it differently. And so I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you share with me how to be an employee and not take a drink. And I go to work, and I, and I try to do it the way you shared that you've done it. And I think my family's dysfunctional, I find out I'm the dysfunction. I don't know how to be a daughter, and I come and you share with me, and I go to my mother's house, and I try and live my life the way that you share with me that you live yours, and I don't take a drink. And every year of my life, I began to live my life differently. I began to live as if I wasn't selfish and self-centered, as if I wasn't grandiose, as if I didn't have the defects that I had discovered. I began to live my life as if those defects had been removed. And living my life differently to make my amends, um, those defects began to lessen. I believe for me that God removes the defect by us living our lives in such a way as if the defect had been removed. Um, and I, got, I began to get right with everybody in my life. Then, I'm very neurotic, then I noticed that I still don't have any friends, by the way, um, but I know that because, because they're a nuisance, quite frankly. <laughs> People will see you on a Tuesday and they'll go, where were you Sunday? I tried to call you. And it's like, you know what, if I wanted you to know where I was, I would have told you before I went. You know, stop bothering me. <laughs> but I'm noticing that other people in AA have friends. I'm finally noticing that like after a meeting, these groups of people are going out to coffee and this group is going to a movie and these people are talking about going to Denver for the weekend. And, Folks are like doing things together, being friends. And I'm thinking, and, and if you're neurotic, and you are if you're an alcoholic, pretty soon you're like, you want it, whatever you want it. Even if you didn't want it, you want it now. So, 
So I decided I need some friends. Well, this is how I decide who my friends are. You're sitting next to me three meetings in a row. You are now my friend. <laughs> now I have a friend. I'm really cool because now I got a friend. But then my friend does something to annoy me, like crack their gum or breathe too hard or accidentally kick me as they're crossing their legs. Well, now you can't be my friend anymore because you've irritated me. But now, this person's been sitting next to me for two or three meetings, now this person's my friend. Until they do something to irritate me, like breathe too hard or crack their gum. And Now you can't be my friend anymore, but AA's a big place. You can get new friends every three or four days. And about every four or five days, I'm getting new friends because my friends are annoying me. I accidentally mentioned this to my sponsor. Not a good idea. Accidentally mentioned to my sponsor that the people, I'm trying to be friends with the people in AA and they are annoying me. And my sponsor reminds me that I refuse to make amends to my father. I said, Anne? She said, Patty, hate does not know that it's directed at one person. You cannot hate one person and not have that hate spill out into every other relationship in your life. Hate doesn't know it belongs to one person. I became willing to make amends to my father, not because I wanted to go to father-daughter penguin. I became willing to make amends to my father because I wanted to have relationships with you. Doesn't matter what my motive is. What matters is what my actions are. And I began to do daughterly things with my father in order to make amends so that I could have friendships with you. And I need to tell you, I got people in my life today that have been friends of mine for years and years and years. I have friends who crack their gum. It still annoys me, but they can be my friend. I have people in my life who love me and I can let them love me. I don't have to tell them how to do it. They love me the way they want to love me. And I love them. And you can't get here from where I was. And I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to have friends. I came here to stay out of jail. That's all I wanted. If I'd had a my way, I'd have shortchanged myself. If a single day in the last 25 years I had a my way, I'd have shortchanged myself. 10, 11, and 12 for me are the recovery steps. Are the steps that allow me to continue to grow in Alcoholics Anonymous. 10 says the process is powerful. Keep, keep using it. Keep writing about it, talking about it, ask God to remove the defect, make amends if necessary, and then turn your attention to somebody you can help. What is it I can do for you? How can I be of service? It seems to me when I'm focused on my problem, God can't do a thing with it. But when I turn my attention to you, God can come in and take care of my stuff. Selfish and self-centered, it's the nature of my disease. Through the action of the steps, I have been able to get to a place where today it's about you, it's no longer about me. Sometimes we tell new people, let us love you until you can love yourself. My message is let us love you until you can love somebody else. Selfish and self-centered is what I need to move away from. Let us love you until you can love somebody else. What is it I can do for you? How can I be of service? Step 11 for me, I'm a very simple person. My prayer in the morning is very simply, thy will be done. And I'm so naive, I truly believe the rest of the day is God's business. My job is to not drink, show up, and live life to the fullest. The rest of it is God's business. My prayer at night is a little scarier and offer it to anybody who'd like to use it. My prayer at night is, dear God, please have people treat me tomorrow exactly the way I treated people today. And when I know I'm going to say that prayer tonight, it will hold me in good stead. It keeps me from flipping people off on the freeway when they cut in front of me. It keeps me from counting the items of the person in front of me in the 10 item or less line and announcing it not only to the checkout person, but to everybody in the grocery store. Please have people treat me tomorrow exactly the way I treated people today. I happen to be a formal meditator. I love to meditate. There's a line in the book where it says, we try to control and enjoy our drinking. I have to try and control and enjoy my meditation. I love to meditate. I am so spiritual when I am meditating alone. My difficulty is being with you. 
but I love to meditate. But you know, I get my best answers in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. My best answers come from you. I come here and you share with me how you live your life and don't take a drink. And that's where I get my answers and how to live out there. Because you share how you live your life, how you go through being laid off, having jobs, being, being the, having relationships in, um, having deaths in the family, and you don't take a drink. And you share that with me. You give me the information I need to go out there and live, and that's what meditation is for me. It's getting the answers to live life to the fullest. Step 12 is the greatest gift you've ever given me, the opportunity um, to give a little listening to another human being, to look into the eyes of another alcoholic and say, honey, you don't have to live that way anymore. Take my hand, come with me, sit in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you don't have to live that way anymore a day at a time. My life today is absolutely incredible. My life today is beyond my wildest imagination. And I have a really wild imagination, but it is beyond <laughs> anything that I could have planned for myself. If I'd have had it my way, I'd have shortchanged myself. If you're new here tonight, go home tonight and write down what it is you expect to have happen to an Alcoholics Anonymous and put that paper away. And next year, when you're taking a cake for either one year or 12 months of sobriety, <laughs> they're the same thing but uh, <laughs> take that paper out and read it and find out if you'd had it your way you'd have shortchanged yourself if a single day in the last 25 years I'd had it my way I'd have shortchanged myself today I am right with everybody in my life I'm right with you I'm right with me and I'm right with God and a testimony to that is I have the ability to nod out in a meeting of alcoholics anonymous I understand because I've experienced it with that old man um, showed me on my fourth day of sobriety I understand because I've experienced the serenity and the peace and the brightness inside of me. And I've had that privilege to experience it because you are here for me. It takes a tremendous amount of courage and strength to continue to choose to recover, and I don't have it. I don't have the courage and strength it takes to continue to choose to recover, but you do. And I come here, and when we pray tonight, the person on my right will give me the courage, and the person on my left will give me the strength. And you give me the courage and strength that I need in order to choose to recover another day. And you give the person next to you and the person next to you. And I'm gonna end with this story because it's time to dance. And quite frankly, I have to use the restroom. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna end with this story because it puts it together for me. It's the story of the man that goes to see St. Peter and he's asked St. Peter to show him heaven and hell. St. Peter takes him to a room and it says hell on the door, but when they open the door, inside the room is a banquet, tables and tables and tables of food. As much food as he could ever imagine, any kind of food he'd ever want. But the people sitting in that room amongst all that food are dying, they're starving and they're hungry. And the reason that they're hungry is they have, you know those long wooden spoons that people who cook? No, I, I know how to make one thing, it's reservations. You know, <laughs> but people who cook use those long wooden spoons and they're tied to their hands and the spoons are just a little bit too long and they can't quite get the food to their mouth so they're sitting amongst plenty and they're starving. And that's how I was before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was out there amongst plenty and I was starving. Then he takes them to a room marked heaven and that room's the same thing, tables and tables and tables of food. As much food as you could ever imagine, any kind of food you'd ever want. And those people had those spoons tied to their hands too, and the spoons were just a little bit too long. And they couldn't quite get the food to their mouth, but the people in that room were full and they were happy and they were content. And the reason was is that one man was taking a spoonful of food and he was feeding the man across the table. And he was taking a spoonful of food and feeding the person next to him, and she was feeding somebody else. And that's... And that's how Alcoholics Anonymous works for me. I don't have my own answers. I have to come here and I have to let you feed me. And if I'm lucky, every once in a while I get to give a spoonful of this thing to another alcoholic. And you don't have to have 51 years or 20 years or five years or one year. If you have one day, you have something to feed to the man or woman coming through the door. If you have one day, you have the strength to give to the person on your left and you have the courage to give to the person on your right in order that we can all continue to choose to recover. Of myself, I'm nothing. By myself, I can't do it. But with you, 
I can stay sober another day. Together we can all stay sober one more day. When I was four days sober, an old man told me if I didn't drink, I wouldn't get drunk. And if I didn't get drunk, my life would get different and he didn't lie to me. And the thing I end with, I end with it because it's been my experience and I pray God it's your experience. It's a line that we already heard in chapter five, a line that says there is one who has all power. That one is God, we can find him now. Thank you.